0: In a world filled with movies, it can be hard to choose just one to watch.
1: What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I'm not deciding this. What do you want to watch? I asked first. Come on. What do you want to watch? No. What do you want to watch? What do you want to watch, Patrick? Where even
2: narrowing down a genre can be a struggle.
1: How about we watch a drama? Too Many Emotions. Okay, then how about we watch an action film? Too many
0: explosions. I know, I know. Let's watch a horror movie. Oh, uh,
2: Dad, just do an interview already. Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, dad.
0: Hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. This is Steve Turk again. Um, joined with a boxer, actor, producer, writer. Um, for me, being a big Superman, the movie fan, the legend, Jack O'Holloran. How you doing, sir? I'm very well, thank you. And yourself? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I mean, you're on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. Uh, we're in the middle of that nice heat wave as we record this. I'm not sure what it's like out there for you.
2: It's gorgeous. You feel like outside the sun's. I mean, it's gorgeous here every day. You guys are in. I mean, it's like. 100 degrees downtown LA, but we're out here at the beach where it's like 78,
0: 80 degrees The breeze off the water. So it's kind of, kind of nice. (laughs) Well, somebody, at least somebody's having a good day with the weather.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's about it. Can't go anywhere, you know.
0: Well, that is true. And that's, that's, um, you know, the the sad fact as this whole year has been, um, kind of, different than any other year that I've ever experienced. And I'm sure that you've ever experienced in, in, the, in well, the, you the,
2: got that right. And I thought I've been through some funny years, but uh, this is, this is a corker, you know, with hopefully when the election's over, it all cut the stop, you know, things will hopefully get back to some kind of normal,
0: you know? Oh, I agree. I think, I think everybody is not every, but most people are craving to get back to some sense of normalcy and get back to that normal routine. Everything was prior to 2020. Now, when did you start getting into boxing? You were like very athletic going through school. If I if I remember reading right, and then eventually you yeah into I a boxing yeah, I
2: really club. was into playing football. You know, I I, I was uh, I, I, when I played football. You you couldn't play pro ball until your class class graduated college. So a lot of guys, Johnny and I, is a lot of people. They they either went to service and they played or. They played semi-pro football until they got into the pros and stuff. And, uh, and, and, and I left school, you know, and went up and the Jets grabbed me right away. And, uh, and I was, but you couldn't play with the Jets. So they put you on a, we played, there was a league in, uh, in the East Coast and there was a team out of Tittigum, which is outside of Philadelphia. And I played on that and Dick Christie and Jim Christie and a bunch of ball players that played pro ball. Played on that team till we, till our class graduated to play, and so when it came time for me to go up and play with the Jets, Philadelphia had a great team. I mean, they had Jergeson, McDonald, and McDonald. Uh, I mean, it was just a, a great young ball team. And I said to Eubank, I said, yeah, I, I want to get down and play in Philly. I got some friends down there." And, uh, and he said, "Well, you know, you got a home, you got a home up here, but that's what you want to do. If you you don't like it, come back up again." So I went down and Jerry Wallman had just bought the team. And they hired this guy, Joe Q. Herrick. And and I watched this guy trade a championship football team away in three months. He got rid of Jurgison. He got rid of McDonald. He got rid of Maxie Bourne. He got rid of a a lot of great young linemen. He traded to Green Bay for Jim Ringo, who was over the hill. I mean, it's just unbelievable the things he was doing. We came out of a meeting uh, one day and, uh, Timmy, Timmy Brown and I—I I don't even remember Timmy Brown. Timmy was a great running guy. Mm-hmm. Timmy came out, we came out of the meeting one day, and Carrick walked right by us, and I said, "Whoa, man! You don't say hello to nobody." Arr! And I said, "You know, what, take this team and stick it." And Timmy said, "Why you're out of trade me?" <laughs> so you know, and Ali had just won the title, so I said to some friends of mine in Philly, you oh, know, "I could beat that guy." <laughs> and they said, "You know." What a great idea. The next thing I know, I wound up in a gymnasium. And uh, Sam Margolis, who was the head of the Jewish mob in Philly, and he had Lispin and a few people, Blinky Palermo. And they grabbed my contact, grabbed me and sat me down. And said, you really want to do that? I said, man, I whooped his head. You know, and so, next thing I know, I'm boxing professional. Because I couldn't box amateur because I was already involved in professional football. Those day, today, you could get away with that. You could do both, yeah. you know. So, so I I started out my career and um, and I and I was uh, my amateur. People say, to me, "You never have an amateur career." I said, "A hundred street fights, man." I my <laughs> amateur career was in the street, and uh, you know. So, we, and I could fight. I had a lot of ability. And I was big and I was fast. Uh, I mean, I when I played ball, I weighed two hundred eighty pounds and I did a four six forty. So I can move, you know, and, uh, that is that, pretty good. That is fast because
0: because you're what 6'6", six, yeah, six? Six, six, yeah. two eighty, yeah. and you were doing a four six four six, six forty. Yeah. holy mackerel! Yeah. I, mean, that, I mean, I mean, because a lot of people don't understand that when you look at the football players always doing those numbers, and it's that is for somebody that size. I mean, you are extremely fast.
2: Yeah, I moved around pretty good, and I had a lot of mobility. In. So come to fighting and I could, and I could fight. So I, you know, and I, like I was 16 and 0 and I went to take a physical one day and this one doctor made me do some tests and he came back and he said, you know, uh, you've got a tumor in the pituitary gland. He said, you have a disease called acromegaly and you shouldn't be fighting at all. He said, in fact, how the hell do you fight? He goes, acromegaly, caused depression and you're not supposed to be able to, he said, how do you even get up for a fight? kid? I just, I laughed. I said, are you kidding me? So they told my management that, and they said, well, maybe you should think about this. I said, like, hell, I'm going to do it. And, and because of where I come from with my father and stuff, I I didn't listen to people. There was only a couple people I haven't really listened to. And I said, you know, it's my day job. And and when you're involved with uh, with organized crime, you had to have a day job, or else the cops were like that. You know, I, I, boxing was a day job. And that night, I'd go out and do my union business and stuff and whatever I had to do. Uh, so, you know, but I, I, I didn't take it as serious as I should. If I trained the way I should have trained, I probably never would have lost the fight. But I, you know, I, I would take a fight on two days' notice. I would take a fight on a week's notice. And I was fighting all over the country because it gave me a chance to go and take care of business in, in other states. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And I, so, you you, you blow a decision, you know, it, 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 boxing, I wasn't looking at the time to become world champion. It was a day job. You know? But then, then when I got on into it a little bit more, I started taking it serious a little bit. And I, you know, and I and I, I would uh, train for a month and I'd beat a couple world-ranked fighters. And people would say, my God, this guy can really fight. You know? And then, then guys would, I mean, I was signed to fight Ali four times. And it just, missing for reasons and uh, i remember i was they were looking for a white guy to fight joe frazier and uh guy called me on the phone or, and i had to sit in my house for a couple months over some union problems or some uh, indictments floating around and so i was training i was going to the gym i had nothing else to do during the day and i got in pretty good shape i called me on the phone he said uh, you want to fight terry daniels in houston texas and I said, send me a ticket. He said, you'll take the fight. I said, send me a ticket. So I went down, and Terry Daniels was ranked number six in the world, something like that. They were looking for a white guy to fight Frazier in Houston, Texas. So I went down, and Lou Vescuzi was the promoter. He said, My God, you're in shape. I said, Aren't you supposed to be in shape when you come to a fight, man? (laughs) And and I destroyed Terry Daniels in three rounds. I mean, the the kids,
0: uh,
2: I knocked him out in the third round. And, and I went back home with Yank Durham on the airplane, and Durham said to me, Jack, uh, you fight one more good fighter, you can have the Fraser fight. I said, I'll tell you what, you name the fighter in the place, send me a ticket. He said, are you kidding me? I said, what did I just tell you? You pick the fighter, so there's no mistakes. You pick the fighter and then the place, and send me a ticket. So they called me up call a week or so later, and said, you were fighting Cleveland Williams in Houston, Texas. Cleveland was a world-ranked fighter, and and he was from Texas, and it was his hometown. So, you know, and I said, um, "Okay." So I go down, and I beat Cleveland badly, and ten out of ten rounds. And, and
0: uh,
2: in fact, the last three rounds of the fight, I was holding him up by the elbows. <laughs> I didn't mean he was going to fall down. I pick him up, and I pull him in. I say, "Man, don't be falling down on I me. Mean, we've been dancing all night." I kind of <laughs> liked Cleveland. <laughs> and if he went the distance with me, he was helping make money after. So, you know at the end of his career. So I, I, after the after the fight with Cleveland Williams, Terry Daniels got the Frazier fight, Cleveland Williams fought George Savallo on the same card, and no one would fight me because I was in too good a shape and that scared a lot of people. And the same thing happened to me in uh, 1969. I fought a guy, a guy in, in, in L.A. called Manuel Ramos, who was the Mexican champion, and he was ranked number two in the world. They were looking to make an alley fight with him. But what I had done is I went to Africa, South Africa, and I was down there for a month, and I got in tremendous shape. And I fought a kid, Jimmy Richards, down there, and they, they called it. They wanted me to live down there, and I said, nah, I don't think so. So they called the fight a draw, which I beat the kid's hands down. Anyway, so but 10 days later, I'm in L.A. fighting this guy in L.A. And when I arrived in L.A., George Parnassus looked at me and said, my God, you're in tremendous condition. I said, no, I'm going to knock this guy out. Oh, my God, you can't do that. <laughs> 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 I knocked out Manuel Ramos and said, no one wanted to fight me. And, and that's when the film industry came at me to do a picture called uh, The Great White Hope with James Earl Jones. And uh and the deal was put together by Raymond Patriarca. I didn't know it from Rhode Island. They wanted me off the streets. And the guy said to me, well, we're going to send you to Spain for six months. And I said, well, wait a minute. Hold on. I just beat the number two guy in the world. And I'm looking to fight Ali. And you want me to go to Spain for six months? I said, I don't think so. He said, hey, I thought the deal was all made. You were just going to sign the contract. And I said, you know, uh, 84, 8484, it was Ryan Fox that was so upset. He said, you're going to get us killed. I said, I'll take care of Raymond. Don't worry about it. You know, and, and and Steve McQueen was a good friend of mine. He said, "Yeah, man, we're trying to get you in Hollywood. You should come here, Jack. What are you doing?" I would like, "Come out here. We'll have a good time." And I just wasn't ready for it, you know. Yeah. And uh, so I, um, you know, I went on and pursued some things that blocked over in Europe and stuff. And no one would fight me then. And I fought foreman and and the foreman fight I trained a week and a half for. Yeah, stupid. And he caught, and I was beating for him in the first couple of rounds, and he uh, and I walked into a punch—my own fault. You know, it's my—I just walked into a punch. But I got up, and they stopped the fight very quickly, which really hurt ir- very bad. I was not too, and George knew it. He, but he would never fight me again.
0: He knew <laughs> he knew we got luck there, and he was like, "Oh, uh,
2: he and I were good friends, and, and, uh, and we became pretty good friends after that." George was George was a tough kid, but um, so you know and. and I went to England. I beat some good fighters over there, ranked fighters, and you know, I, uh, I just. Uh, and then seventy six, I finally, the Acromiglia, I was in, I was living in San Diego. I, they called me on the phone one day. I was we were really having a bad time in uh, Philly with uh, the uh, bartender waiters union,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which we which I was involved in, and we had indictments all over the place. So I was sitting in my house, and they, I get a phone call, and they, "Will you fight Kenny Norton?" I said, "Where? San Diego." I said, "When?" They said, "Next week." I said, "Send me a ticket." Guy said, "You'll take the fight?" I said, "Send me a ticket. I hope to get out of town." So I went to San Diego and I beat Norton to death. I mean, I—I I, I, it was a great, great fight. And uh, ninth round, we're in the middle of the. We're after, after the ninth round was over, people were standing on the chairs, screaming, yelling. And so loud that when they rang the bell, nobody heard us. They rang it three times before anybody heard it. The referee separated us. I'm going back to my corner, and Kenny ran across the ring and hit me behind the head and drove me into the ring post. And and the commissioner, Joey Almas, was sitting right there in my corner. And he jumped up and he said, If you can't continue, you just won the fight on a foul. And now I'm I'm angry. I said, Bill, continue. I'm going to kill this guy. Are you crazy? And I should have listened to the Mexican trainer that was in my corner and say, "Sit down." And and I went out and fought the tenth round, and and, and of course they he got a hometown decision because that's where he was from, and they're looking to make the alley fight with him. So I, you know, but I won the town, so I stayed there, and I knocked out five six guys and, uh, and, and fought Henry Clark, who no one wanted to fight, and I took the state title away from him. And I was California heavyweight champion, and uh, you know, so I things started to turn around and then, but the doctor in San Diego was a dear friend of mine. He was a good guy mm-hmm. and he was the boxing doctor. And he said to me, you know, Jack, you've got to do something about this acromegaly because it will kill you. It's a bad disease, man. He said, you really? So he made me, he said, either you go to Scripps and get a workup or I'm taking your license away because I don't want to see you die. So I went to Scripps and I had this workup done and acromegaly, caused a, Production of growth hormone, where because your pituitary does all your hormones, and when your body would be putting out ten percent growth hormone, I was putting out one hundred and fifty, and that's why it depressed you because it drained your body and stuff. And they couldn't believe how I was fighting. So I they wanted to do the operation there, but they they wanted to go up through my nose and they would have took the gland, which means I'm on the hormones the rest of my life. No, no, no. So I looked into it at a doctor in New York and. There was a guy in Boston, Mass General, who was a great pioneer of the uh, of, of technology called cyclotron proton machine, which was a, a beam that was better than a laser because it didn't burn, and it causes tumors to inter-explode. And, uh, it was trial deal, and Harvard had this great machine, one of the strongest in the country. So <clears throat> I went to Boston, the Mass General, and Raymond Chalbert was a pioneer doctor, and he did this procedure on me. And, uh, and i was one of a thousand that first time out boy it just knocked the hell out of the tumor and that's what i told you i checked out of the hospital i went to Baltimore Murrow and fight Larry Middleton and i still had the scabs of my head when they had me bolted to the machines. you know it was kind of a dumb move but uh, I, I did crazy things like that when i was younger you know so. but then in 76 and i retired from boxing and uh and I was, I had a couple construction companies in Philly and I was doing some things and I got a phone call from a woman that I used to do commercials for in San Diego. When I was boxing out there, I, I did a lot of commercials for different, for the Clippers and a few other things. And she said, they want you to do a movie called Farewell, My Lovely with Robert Mitchell. Just, I think you should do it.
0: Just before we get to Farewell, My Lovely, I want to ask you a follow-up yeah. question. You said you were friends with Steve McQueen. How did you meet Steve McQueen?
2: In '66, when I moved to Boston, and I, I went to Boston because I was—I I started my boxing career in Philly, and I think I had five or six fights. I was undefeated, and I and, and I got into—I uh, was living at uh, Sheridan the Sheraton Hotel, which was owned by Wallman, because I was going to play with the Eagles, and I was living with a bunch of Eagle ballplayers, and we had a club downstairs that was uh, a great disco. And we were the bouncers at the door, you know, yeah. and, and I got into a skirmish with some people come in and started some crap. And anyway, so I wound up outside and, and I whacked a few people out and then guns were being shot at each other and stuff. So they got me out of the city because they didn't want, I was undefeated fighter. They didn't want me. And Sam said, you got to, we, we, we got to, we clean this up. You're going to Boston. They put me on the train and sent me up to Boston. And, uh, And and I was boxing out of Boston and Steve McQueen did the Thomas Crown Affair. And when he came into Boston, we looked after him. You know, he's a great kid. And he and I became really good friends. And he said, you know, you got to come down. He said, come down on the set. He said, I'll put you in the movie. We'll get your side card. He said, you got to come back to Hollywood, man. We'll have a ball. And I said, I don't think so. I said, (laughs) I'm like, I'm undefeated heavyweight fighter. And I said, I'm looking at a pretty good career here. I said, you know. And Boston's like home to me now. A lot of great friends up there, and uh, so I said, I don't, I don't think I'm ready for that. He used to call me on the phone, Jack. You got to come out here. And he did a picture called Towering Inferno. His name was O'Halloran. How do you like your name up on the screen? And stuff like that. You know? He <laughs> was just that kind of. And when I turned down the Great White Hope, he couldn't believe it. What's wrong with you? He said, Are you crazy? You've got a career out here. And I said, no, I like so yeah, I don't think so. But I did Farewell, my lovely, and 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 uh, it worked really well. Mitchum was a great mentor, and he took me by the hand and he just, man, walked me right through the deal, and uh,
0: and and the picture turned out extremely well. And you played you know, um, Moose Malloy. Moose and Malloy. Yeah. And for those that don't know, don't know which Mitchum we're talking about, we're talking about Robert Mitchum, who played a Philip Marlowe, and um, yeah. Co-starred a lot of people, but um, one of the people I wanted to bring up is Charlotte Rample, Rample, Rampling. Oh,
2: Charlotte Rampling was gorgeous. What a wonderful woman! She's a super, super lady. But I have, we had a great cast. I mean, Tony Zerbe was in the picture. Harry Dean Stanton, John Ireland, Charlotte, uh, Sarah, uh, Sylvia. Uh, what you call from Philly? She was nominated. Uh, I mean, it was just a. It was a great. and draws a lot of people. And the, we had four Oscar winners on the crew. Dean Telavaris won the Oscar for Godfather for set design. Uh, the, the Westmoors were the makeup people, Oscar winners. And uh, the guy that did the special effects was an Oscar winner. You know, it was just uh, Mitch and Drew, that kind of crowd, you know. And, uh, and he was just, uh, I mean, Robert was just incredible. He, he couldn't, and he became a real dear friend. He and I were the best of friends. I mean, he was probably most well-read man i ever met in my life and he uh and he had amazing photogenic memory. just a trippy trippy guy really but he was old hollywood you know yep uh okay so we were talking about farewell my love yeah
0: yeah one thing that, yeah one thing you said that yeah. had you had a large cast you actually had one of the first appearances of sylvester stallone in the yeah, movie. did
2: you Sly work Sly with him that? In fact, in fact, I'll tell you a story. We, we, the Sly came out. There was a guy called Joe Spinell, who you see in a lot of pictures, and he used to bring a crew of guys from New York to fill in roles. You know, uh, Joey Archer's brother was 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 one of the guys. He was a newspaper guy at the stand that was his apartment when I went into and mentioned him. That was that was Joey Archer's brother. And, um, the fighter and he was in it. And so all these guys came from New York and Sly was his first one. Well, one of the first movies he did. And he was writing Rocky and he sat and picked my brain every day because he'd never been to Philadelphia. I mean, he, they say he went to school there, but I think he went to a private school people don't know that about him. His, his mother was married to a wise guy. And she lived in Florida. He went to public, private schools in Switzerland and, and stuff like that. So he had never been. So I gave him all the information about the waterfront and the, the gym, the where we trained at, which was the Passion Gym down in South Philadelphia. And he made it up in North Philly, but the same building looked identical to the one at Pash more and Moore. And how we had to go up three flights of stairs to the crusty old gym. And uh, where Joey Giardella trained and some great fighters kind of. You know. And I, and I I told him about all about Philly, you know, and how I was a gangster fighter from there. And and I was owned by the mob and and I did certain things down on the waterfront and stuff like that. And he, um, he put his version of it in there. You know what I'm saying? I knew maybe kind of,
0: huh? I knew when I saw his name and you, and it was prior to Rocky, I said, if he didn't pick your brain, he was, he was crazy. You know?
2: (laughs) Every day. He picked my brain every day. He just, you know, about boxing. And, and I told him I was signed to fight for the title and, you know, several times and stuff and, and gave him descriptions of uh, the friendship I had with Ali, and, you know, uh, and, and, you know, just, so he took two fighters careers, Webner's and mine. And Webner was a bleeder. Webner was the uh, like a walk-in brawler kind of guy, bleeder, and, and, and he took that to be the guy he wanted to be, getting punched around and stuff like that. Um, you know, and he, uh, and he made a hell of a career out of it. God bless him. You know, people said to me, well, why, why you? and I went to see him one time. He was doing uh, Rocky II, I think. And my agent said, go down, and they, they're looking for people around the boxing thing. So I went down and met him at MGM. And he was uh, sitting behind his desk, and he had a platform, because Sly's really small. He's not very tall. And and he had a platform to where he was <laughs> looked tall. <And laughs> I laughed and said, yo, man, you're taking this thing out of bounds a little bit. <laughs> and he thought he was bigger than his britches then, because, you know, Rocky did so well and all that stuff. And and he had an attitude, and I, and I wouldn't have done the movie at that if, if they had offered because... I would have given him a smack, you know. So, you know, God bless him. He listen. He he made a great career for himself with it and all that. and More power to him. But you know, he's got his own demons. I'll just leave it with that.
0: Yeah, but as new when I saw his name and you, I had a feeling I had I was going to ask that question, and when I, it was just it was just something I had to know because i would be crazy oh, not God, to follow. Oh God, he would be
2: crazy. He, I mean, Archer sat and Archer said, "Oh man, he wants to talk to you." He really he wants it, and so I, I explained to him and I, you know, my relationship with alpha and and, and and all the things that we did in organized crime, you know, and he uh he just uh and, you know and and it was uh, the movie came out pretty well. He got away with murder,
0: you know. So. Yeah, it's, it's, a next, it's an excellent movie, you know, and uh, you can't argue well, it. Made a career it. out it. I mean, they decreed. I mean, they,
2: every time we turn around, they're doing something else than Bobby Rock. He yep. did a half dozen films with it. He
0: did,
2: did, did very well for himself.
0: Yeah. Oh, no, no. no. But he's not a bad actor
2: for what he does, you know. Hey. But it's, uh, when I did Farewell, he, he had a small role in it. You know, there was a lot, like I said, all these guys came from New York because the picture was a 2-5 budget. two million five hundred. they made that movie, which is incredible, you know, with the, with the cast that they had. I mean, God, Charlotte. And Charlotte Rampling was just... You're talking about some Hollywood duties. That lady was a pretty lady, believe me when I say Inside and out, just a really good, nice lady. And uh, we just, uh, you know, it, it, it was good. And it was the first real mistake I made in my career. And uh, because Mitchum had arranged for me to do the Johnny Carson show. Okay. And, and I met Johnny Carson at the Polo Lounge. And, and he, it's a funny, here's a funny story Ed McMahon. Was his sidekick then, and Ed McMahon came from Philly, and he used to work on American Bandstand yep. with uh, with with Dick Clark, and he was also uh, he was like a, uh, an auxiliary general in the in the in the service, he like a reserve guy, you know, in the armed forces. So we were buying surplus from him, different, <laughs> 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 the tanks and then airplanes and shit, and sell them. Countries and stuff. Then it was a deal we had going. And, and I remember when I went into the Polo labs and he was sitting with Johnny Carson. And he said, uh, don't, "Don't don't tell him that you knew me from before, but he did not John to know anything, <laughs> anything about it. So I Just don't worry about it." it we sit down and, I, and Johnny Carson was all excited because Farewell. I don't know if you've ever seen the film. Yes, I have. But it's it's a, a very good film. It's a dynamite movie. It's a great film. And it's sad that they didn't have the money to promote it properly because it was really a good film. And he said, if you do my show, I'll get you nominated for Supporting Actors. And that was a weak year for Supporting Actors, so I had a pretty good chance of winning. And uh, and it dawned on me, I said, you know, um, your show is live, isn't it? He said, yeah. I said, "Eh, I don't know whether I could do it. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, I said, I'm going to come out and uh, uh, you're going to introduce me and then you're going to ask me about my father. And uh, and I'm going to ask you where the men's room's at. He said, you would get up and leave? I said, uh, yeah. Because I don't talk about my father and I don't want anybody else talking about him. And that was the dumbest thing. Cause, you know, and Mitch screamed at me the next day. What? He said, Jack, <laughs> you're talking about Hollywood. They love this kind of stuff. What's the matter with you? And I knew he told... Carson everything about me because he and I used to have long chats. Robert knew my father and he knew where I came from and uh, and he loved telling people, why guess who my best friend is. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, so I, and I should have done the show. I really should have done it. And I kicked myself in the butt, but I never look at yesterday, you know, it is what it is, but the movie gave me a lot of credibility. And, uh, you know, the next picture I did was King Kong, and I, I just kept working one picture after another.
0: Yeah, one and thing, I, I
2: did King Kong. The
0: yeah, one thing I was going to say, uh, after watching Follow Me, my follow up, my lovely, I always remember you now saying, where's my Velma? Where's my Velma? <laughs> <'Cause>,
2: yeah, <laughs> that was it. I remember one of the people asked me what was a great scene that you did. I loved the scene when we came out of the dance club and when I first meet him and we're walking down the street and I, and I, tell him I want to hire him to find uh, my girlfriend. And he says, uh, what does this film look like? And I delivered a great line to him. Cute, cute as lace pants. You know? And it was, uh, so I, you know, the timing and everything, which I got from fighting all worked very well in the industry and having somebody like him to just tell it that you know, we Robert arranged for us to go to work together the very first day. He lived in Bel Air, and I was staying off of uh, Sunset Boulevard at, the, at a hotel. And he came, the car came to pick me up, and we had to drive all the way downtown the 5th and Main to a seedy area of L.A. because it was a period piece. And uh, they called me from the desk, and they said, oh, your car's here. So it was like 7 in the morning, and I said, oh, great. I'm hustling down to. I come through to the doors by the pool was and into the lobby. And there's Mitchum standing against the wall with his foot up on the wall with dark glasses on. Nobody even recognized him. And, and I saw him and I'm walking down the steps and he looked at me and he said, well, this must be Jackie O. <laughs> <laughs> and we got in the car and we just put a rapport together. It was like, not only met him once, I met him at a fight one time. Not really any hello, just aloha hello Hawaii. Because uh, he loved boxing. He was a boxer freak. And uh and, we, and he had me laughing all the way down to the set. And we got we got down to the set and I, I, geez, you know. And, and I got dressed and I met him at the very first shot that we were gonna first shot of my whole life that I ever did as far as the film was concerned. And he looked at me and he said, um, read that script, kid. I said, Read it. I know your role, Charlotte's role, John Ireland's role. I said, I know everybody Back cover a cat. He said, Good, throw it in the trash can. I said, he said, throw it." He said, "I don't want you. I don't want to catch you doing what thousands of people in this town do—acting. Just be yourself. Take that character, stick him in you, and walk down the street like the character." He said, "You've been a gangster all your life, kid." He said, "And this guy's a hoodlum? Be a hoodlum. The chemistry—I looked at him. I said, "You know," I said, "Wow, what a trip!" And and he was right on the money, boy. You know. We were, uh, I mean, we walked up on the set, and uh, the director, Dick Richards, was so nervous at the first shot, he forgot to say action. <laughs> <laughs> the said to him, Dick, I think you have to say action here, man, you know? So, and, and he said to me, see all those guys behind the camera all giving orders to everybody? I said, yeah. He said, don't worry about a thing about them, Jim. He said, you're the one on tape. They can all be replaced. You're the guy. You're the star, kid. And, uh, and I, we just it worked out. I remember we did the very first shot. And they started moving cameras around and everything. And I looked at Mitchum and I said, what's the deal here, man? He said, you really don't know. I said, I'm, what am I asking? He said, that's it, kid. I said, that's all there is to this shit? He said, the whole enchilada, boy. And I looked at him and I said, man, I'm a star. <laughs> he made that the tagline of the movie. You know. He was just that kind of a person. You understand? Yep. He was just a dynamite. I mean, the first day we got done working, and, and I had to go back, and they were reshooting something, and and now I'm leaving. I'm saying, well, how do I get out of here? He can't be still here. He must be gone. You know. And I, I go over to the carpool where the cars are waiting for, and there he is standing beside the carpool, you know, shooting the breeze with the with the driver. And I, I said, whoa, man. I said, I thought you were long going home. And he said, can't okay, go home without the star now, can we? <laughs> <laughs> I
0: mean, I think, that's the way he was. The chemistry the two of you had in the movie, and obviously it sounds like in real life, was it was, it was visible in the movie, you know, because like, the two of you played all oh, the time yeah. so no, well.
2: It really worked well. And I never knew that. When I saw the film, I said, wow, man. It's like my friendship with him was right on the money, you know? Yep. I was... Uh, and he hit it right on the head. I mean, he, he taught me the technical aspects and he taught me about the industry. And he, you know, he said, don't, he said, listen, Jack, look right through that camera. Get an eye mark and just look at that. He said, don't look at the camera. It'll come to you. Camera either love you or it won't. Yep. And I said to him, well, I asked him, I said, what is the definition of the word star for you? He said, that's a word. He said, what, what that's about? He said, it's called word called presence. Either you have it or you don't, and they can't teach you that. He said, and, you know, he said, and he gave me an example. He said, you know, he said Brando could do a picture, and no matter what picture he does, people will walk out of the theater saying, boy, Marlon was great at this, and Marlon was great at that because of the presence he had. Or, or even Mitchum himself or Gregory Peck or, you know, John Wayne. Said, then you take a guy, yeah. He said, "You take a guy like Bill Holden, who's a very good actor." He said, "But he'll do a part, but he'll be walking in there and he'll saying, boy, he was really good.' What was his name?" He said, "It's the word called presence." And he said, "You have it, kid, and they can't teach you that." And I remember when I was leaving, I think we were working about four weeks on the film, and I was leaving Samuel Goldwyn Studios, where the where Caster had his production office was at. And I was leaving. I had to go there for something one day and I'm leaving out and the guy that edited the picture, who was an Oscar winner, had his editing booth right by the gate walking out of Goldberg. and He stopped me and he said, Jack, he said, this your first picture, really? I said, this is it, Jack. The whole enchilada. never did anything before. He said, well, I'll tell you something. I'm sitting here editing, putting this picture together and, and young man, you're, you're about to become a star. He said, I've done a lot of pictures in my life, but you you haven't. So, I, you know, I went to Mitchum, and I said, oh, man, I said, tell him what the guy told me. I said, maybe I should go to UCLA and take some elocution lessons or take some of these acting lessons. And Mitchum laughed, and he said, uh, stick with me, kid, and you'll fart through silk. Don't worry about a thing. Everything's going down the street just right.
0: <laughs> now, I believe yeah. during this movie, and I know in a couple other movies, they refer to you as King Kong because your size and you're big. Yeah. And then of man. course, 1976 movie that came out, you were in the movie King Kong. Play, yeah. You know, playing I was,
2: uh, Joe Perko. Joe Perko. Yeah. They, they came to me. I mean, I've never read for a picture. I've never had the audition that people came to me to do. Movies. And, they, uh, the read this picture, they came to me and they offered me one of three roles. I had the Ed Lauder role or, uh, there were three, or four roles that I could have taken, and, and I chose the Perko role. And I said, "You yeah, know, that seems like pretty cool. And uh, and I said the very first words in the movie, and, uh, and you know, but there was a, 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 a the movie's about a monkey. You know what I mean? So no matter who the cast is, you know, you're, the monkey's the star of the movie. Yep. And Charlotte, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Jesse. Jesse. Jesse was her first movie.
0: Yeah, Jessica Lane, for those you know,
2: that are not you knew she was a star the day she walked on on a set and, and she, her and I became really good friends and I I really loved Jessie Jessie was uh I mean she just had the quality man she she was a dancer she was married to Borisnikov and uh so but and the director for K- King Kong has a great script a great cast but a a, a drunk director and uh, and he's chasing Jesse around all the time, you know. And he tried to make her look too much like Marilyn Monroe. That was ruined her career. Actually. Tried to make her look like Marilyn Monroe, and he, and but she was just so dynamic, and you knew. So I, and her and I, like I said, we became really, really good friends, and, uh, and I had a lot of respect for her. You know, she was she was a sweetheart, and and, and Jeff is a good guy. Bridges is a good person. He and I became friends, and. Eddie Lauder was a good guy. I mean,
0: there were some great actors. Yeah, because you know yeah. Charles Grodin, Groden and um...
2: yeah, Charlie Grodin was a funny bastard. He was a funny guy. Oh, really? I mean, Charlie? Oh my God! We're doing. We're on a set one day, that say how how uh, how? Uh, what would you say? Narcissistic he is. He, he's uh, he's up on a set, and he, everything has to be perfect for him. His hair and his attire and all. He's, and he has it, and everything he does, he's a funny guy. So I'm sitting there, and, uh, and I was with uh, oh God, who's the guy next to me? Dennis Pimple, and I said, uh, "Watch this, man! You want to get a laugh?" And he said, "What are you going to do?" I said, "Watch what happens." So Charlie's all ready to do a shot. We were we were in the in in the crew room where he was making this, pronouncing this big lecture, and I and I, and I looked at, him, "Hey, Charlie." Yeah, what's up? I said, your hair, man. You got like a hole in the side of your hair because they were spraying his scalp because he was starting to lose his hair. They were spraying his scalp to bring the color out and stuff like that. I said that yeah, there's like a hole. Oh my god, he stopped everything. Where'd you make up people? He <laughs> 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 was he was he was so afraid that it didn't look perfect. And you know, practical jokes were but yeah, you got to do. So we. And we, that was a long picture. I mean, we shot for like nine months. It was one of the longest shoots in Hollywood at the time. So, you know, then I did a picture of March or Die. And when I was going to be assigned to do March or Die, which was the same director for "Farewell my love. And that was with Gene Hackman and Catherine Deneuve.
0: Terrence uh, Hill?
2: Yeah, Terrence Hill was a big Italian star. Oh, I love and, Terrence
0: uh,
2: Hill. <laughs> oh, sorry, it was That was the first movie he ever spoke English in because he was Italian, and and Terry's still working. He does a a series over there. And he, um, we were doing, I signed to do March or Die, and they came to me, Cubby Broccoli came over to Beverly Hills, and I get a call from my agent, he said, you got to come to the office. I said, what for? He said, Cubby Broccoli's here to see you. He wanted me to do the Bond movie. And I'm sitting having lunch with Mitchell. Because he was celebrating his birthday, so we're getting we're getting him piss-eyed, you know. <laughs> and we're sitting there having lunch, and I said, "I got to go around the corner." I was right around the corner from where my agent was, and I said, "I got to go around the Myers office." I said, "Because you know this guy, this guy, uh, Bobby Brockley's from London, is over there. And they want me to do his picture, uh, the, the Bond picture." And he said, uh, "Did you read the script?" I said, yeah. He said, you like it? I said, no. He said, why? I said, I don't want to get typecast into those kind of goony picture people like that. And he said, then the hell with it. Don't do it. Have a drink. <laughs> 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 so I sat there for another half hour. I said, no, nah, man, I better get around the corner. So I, I go around. And these guys are waiting all this time for me. And I walk in the office and of well, we want you to do this, and we'll bring you to London, blah, blah, blah. blah. I said, you know, I, I really appreciate this, I said, but I just signed to do a film called March or Die, you know, and I said Meyer, I don't know, Meyer, can we get out of this or what we're doing here and, and I said, I think I should give it a pass because I've already agreed to do this other thing and I could have got out of the picture really so I, they weren't too happy about that <laughs> they were kind of, a little bit, because they really wanted me to do it because I, I it started to dawn on me how powerful farewell I was, you know. And in Europe, the picture did very well. In France, it was huge because of Catherine's enough, you know. So they, Gubby Brockley, really wanted me to do this character, and I said no. And then when I was doing King Kong, we had a break, and they wanted me to do a picture. We had a six-week break while they went to New York to shoot the ending. Then they were coming back. So six weeks, I could sit on the beach at Hermosa Beach and just hang out. And they came to me, Paramount came to me to do uh, a, a picture with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor uh, Silver Street yeah. up in Canada. And and, and uh, the production was going to let me go for the six weeks. And then I would come back down and finish King Kong. And I thought about it and I said, eh. And they were offering me, Paramount really wanted me to do this. And it was the same type of a big Lummox guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, but, but I should have done it cause it was with Pryor and wilder and they were good actors and stuff. And it, and it would have taken me, kept me working and, you know, instead of lumbering around on the beach, like I was doing, but I had some other things for to do. And, and, uh, so I, I passed on it and it was a mistake because Paramount really wanted me. And they were offering me walking tall and everything else. If I did it, and I, uh, and I said, ah, I don't know whether I can, you know, and what if I don't get back in time to finish Kong? And they said, No, oh, they already said you were releasable. But I didn't do it. That was another mistake I made because it an angered Paramount. And I had a great picture that I wanted to do that I'm getting ready to do now, 40 years later. I had written a great script. Uh, I don't know if you ever remember The Informer with Victor McLaughlin. Yes. John Ford. And it was a four, they won four Oscars. So it was, a, um, when I first signed with my agent, Myron Michigan, and we sat down, he said, well, what are you looking to do in the career, in your career? And I said, Cause he, he wasn't signing people, but he had Lee Marvin was one of his, one of his people. And he talked to Marvin about signing me. And Marvin said, if you don't sign him, I'm leaving the agency. He said, that kid's a hell of an actor. you better. You better. So, we were talking about what, what 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 your career, and I said I would like to do pictures like Victor McLaughlin, you know, who I thought was a great actor. And he said uh, they don't do pictures like that anymore. I said, well, I guess I'll just remake The Informer. He said, you're not an actor six months, and already you're going to be a producer and a writer. Are you crazy? What? <laughs> so I read the book, and I and I, uh, Liam O'Flaherty was the writer of the book. And he lived in London and I went to see him. I sat down with him and he told me where the characters came from. And the original picture that won four Oscars was done in Hollywood. Very dark. It was all done in one night. It was a dark picture. And, uh, but it was Ford. before Ford just brought that magic to the screen. So I said, you know what? I'm gonna do the version of the book and I'm gonna open it up and show Ireland and everything else in the, and And I wrote a great script. And when I went to write the script, I went to Mitchum and he said, go to a library, get 10 of the best Oscar winning scripts they got, read them all, look at how they format a movie and sit down and write what you want to write and then bring it to me. And I'll tell you whether it's any good (laughs) because I wanted him to do the movie with me. He said, yeah. So, you know, but 40 years later, here I am and we're getting ready to do it now. So, So I turned down Paramount, wanted to do it a few, but I didn't want them changing it. Yeah. I to do my version of it, you know, so in fact, um, yeah, so, you know, time goes on and we, we did, so they came to me, I, did, I turned down the Bond movie, I did March or Die, now, March and while or I die. was doing March or Die, yeah, great movie actually, one wasn't a bad movie.
0: It is a good movie, and you worked with, I think it was the first time you worked with Gene Hackman, you were, yeah. we already talked about you worked with Terrence Hill, Catherine Duneau, yeah. Max Van Seedell. Max
2: Van yeah. I mean, you Ian worked, home, I mean, Ian, Ian Holm, Marcel Bazufi, there were some great actors in that picture.
0: I mean, you're you, you, yeah. you starting off your career, and already you're working with so many different people that can help influence you as an actor, you know, with, oh, Robert, yeah. with Robert Mitchum on. What was it like working with Gene Hackman and, and Max Van Seadown? Hackman was brilliant. You know, the
2: difference between them is, Hackman's a technical technology. I mean, he's a technical actor. Very really freakish about that. If you don't have everything just right, he goes to the trail. <laughs> if you, he walks on the set and the director starts moving people around. Hackman will look at him and say, Did you do your homework last night or what? Well, am I a mechanical toy here? You're going to move me around and, and play and get your head right? He said, When you get it right, call me. I'll be in my was <laughs> 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 So he was, but he was a super guy. Gene was a good guy. I liked him a lot. But he was a, he was a technician at, at the at the craft where him just let it go, you know, and uh, and and I was very fortunate to work with some really good actors, and you learn a lot. I mean, working farewell, Tony Zerbe was a great actor, and you know, and John Ireland is old school, you know. So I, I, you you pick up all these tips from these people how they do, it. and Harry Dean Stanton was a trippy guy. I liked Harry. Harry was a big crazy. But, you know, you just, it's a blend of people. And then when I did Watch or Die, you're working with the most popular European actor was Terence Hill. I mean, they they got the money off it. They got $8 million out of Germany just because of his name.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, uh, the guy from England that put up, that did the picture was Elliot, uh, Lou Gray because of Turns Hill, their front sales were unbelievable, and, and that was his first picture Talking to Ed. He and I were side-by-side side through a lot of the movie. We were around each other all the time. He, uh, so, And, and Max McSiddle is such a gentleman, and, and such a again, old school actor, you know, and it just some of the people, and Catherine, Catherine was gorgeous. You know, Catherine Deneuve was <laughs> he came, she Somebody, Bert Reynolds said to me, he said, listen, man, you're going to do this picture with Catherine Deneuve. He said, you know, she's a man-eater type. Just, you know, watch yourself. I said, really? I said, so first day I see her come on the set, and she, they drive up in her Mercedes, and, and I'm just walking up to the set, and she farewell was big in France, huge movie. And one of the reasons why she did March or Die was because of me. Oh. And I found that I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. And she she came out of her car, and she's behind me, and she's talking to me. And I just ignored her. I just went. I went about my business, and, and she, I kept ignoring her for the first couple of days. And, and the director came up to me and said, "Jack, you've got to talk to Captain Denova. She's going to leave. That's what are you talking about." He said, "You've got to. This lady, you've got to talk to her, man." So I'm sitting having lunch with Hackman. and We're sitting in a bar talking to each other. And she's behind me, and she taps me on the shoulder and said, do you have a light? And I, and I turned around, and I found a match for and I lit her cigarette. I said, oh, Catherine Deneuve. She said, yeah, Jack O'Hara. I said, we shook hands, and she gave me a kiss, and she said, I've been dying to meet you. I said, hey, God, it's very nice to meet you. And I turned, <laughs> kept talking to Hackman. And she just was going crazy. So we became really good friends. She was a suit. i mean, she was— when you talk about beautiful men, that's a pretty lady. Trust me when I say, and, and we became good friends. Catherine was a super lady, you know. We had, and and the movie had some. I mean, Ian Holm was a legend in England, uh, Shakespearean actor, you know. He's a, so we had, we had some great talent that we played with, and, and they came to do Superman. They came down and got Hackman and I, and we went up to London to meet uh, Richard Donner. Yep, about Superman.
0: And Superman. And, uh, and for those that don't know, Superman. You obviously played non. And for our listeners, you got to work with Brando, Christopher Reeve. You know, um, Jackie Cooper. I mean, there's a whole list of people that you worked oh, with. Oh, people. Stamp, I mean,
2: yeah, yeah. Trevor Howard. I mean, all those judges back there. There were some stalwart actors that were on that set. I mean, Maria Schell from from. I mean, geez, there were that cast was unbelievable. Brando was. Brando and I became good Well, he Brando couldn't wait to meet me. That was the funny part. He, Mitchum said to me, "Brando's coming down on a set. Go down and say hello to him for me. You hear me? Go down and introduce yourself." So I said, "Okay." So we, we were. It was the first eleven days that we shot Superman were all Brando? They had to get him on the screen for the money. Yep. You know, and he shot one end to all the footage for it. Right. So. I go down to the set to see him, and he's surrounded by reporters, man. You know, and he saw me coming, and he broke right through to me. He, hey, Jack! And he knew my father, and I didn't know that until he and I started talking. Because he's he's a real New Yorker, friend of You know, he we got into it, and we became very good friends. And there's a guy, you know, when he walks on the set, you can hear a pin drop. Mm-hmm. He's and, and so I. I went down to watch him work one day and, and I, I enjoyed watching people like that, you know, and he's up on a set doing a uh, scene and something happened. there was a function in the camera and the guy said, Oh, it's got to do it again. And, and Marlon said, and he turned around, he said, fix the damn camera and let me know when it's fixed. Never left the set, turned around. And, he, and the guy said, okay. And he turned ran right around and went right into the shot again. But he had cue cards everywhere. I mean, they were up his that. So he came down up the set, and I said to him, I guess some people would be a little nervous asking this, but what's with the cue cards, man? Are you that bored with the industry? Oh, no, 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 Jack. He said, I just don't want the camera to think that I sat up rehearsing all night. and I you know, and I'm taking, I want it to look like I'm taking the words right out of the air. I said, please give me a break. And he laughed, because... <laughs> He was a great Shakespearean actor, you know? Yep. And he ripped off a couple parables of Shakespeare word for word and really boomed it, you know? And he looked at me and he said, That you must know word for word. This stuff, piece of cake. <laughs> I <laughs> will thing. say
0: Okay. I remember when <clears throat> the movie came out and reading up uh, <coughs> excuse me, reading the magazine articles about it, Terrence Stamp at the time because Marlon Brando was paid a, a big salary for that day, you know, for that movie. Oh, it was $4 it was million. Paid.
2: Dollars. They paid him $4
0: million. And Terrence Stamp said something about when he found that what Marlon was making prior to seeing him act, prior to seeing him, he was just like, yeah. he's paid too much. And then later on, after he saw him, he said that they paid him too little.
2: Oh, Brando was, Brando was magic. I mean, when I tell you magic, man, and because and, you reminded me of working with Mitch. Mitchum and Brando were alike, you know, and Hackman, in a so different sense, but, and Terrence, Terrence Terrence Stamp is a great actor. I mean, you're talking about one of the best actors England's ever put out. This kid was so good looking when he was younger, man. I mean, he had the world, he had the magic blue eyes, boy, and, and, and then he got into, his brother was the head of The Who. The singing the group, The Who. Oh, really? Yeah, his brother was in the music business, so Terrence got into that sex, drugs, and rock and roll business, you know, and he really got himself all messed up, and right before Superman, he was in India, living in India, and he got roffed, and he was into this meditation, and he cleaned up his whole act. He was, uh, he, I, mean, I mean, totally stopped everything, cleaned up his act, and Superman was the first movie he had done since he did that. In fact, they had to contact him in India to tell him he was they wanted him to do Superman, and, and he was such a. I really like Terrence. Terrence is uh very sad right now. He's not well and kind of I hope he you know. But he's Terrence was such a dynamic. I mean, God, you, another one that oozed talent. You know, just flowed out of him. And Sarah was a talented lady, but she was young. That was her first picture of life. And Christopher Reeve never did anything before Superman. That was his first real movie. And I remember when he came on the set when, he, when they auditioned him. He was only like 170 pounds.
0: Yeah.
2: And the guy that, 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 that did Don Zader uh, was a bodybuilder.
0: And oh, David uh, Prowse?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Prowse, nice guy. So he came on the set that he was going to work Terrence out. And I, I mean, Christopher, and I said, listen, you don't want to bulk this kid up like a weightlifter to big, bulgy muscles. I said, do you want to... There was a guy named Steve Reeves, who was Mr. America, but he was cut to find you know, his body. I said, that's what you want to do with this kid. You want to make him, because he's got an ego problem. I said, he's not going to wear anything underneath the costume. He wants it to be him, he wants it to be real. So put definition in his body. And they put 20 pounds on him. I think he went up to like 195. Uh, and they did a great job with because he looked terrific, in both Clark Kent and Superman. You know, it wasn't all he was able to be. And he should kiss Donner's feet every day of his life because Donner brought a performance out of that kid that, you know, there will never be another Superman like Christopher. I'll tell you that right now. And okay. he uh, and that's Richard Donner. The only problem with him at the time was he was again young and naive. So he walked around like Superman all the time. You know, he, he always he, he couldn't leave it alone, leave it at the set. You understand?
0: Yeah, I heard like, Which a lot, know, actors, you know, a lot of actors... A lot of actors don't like to break character. They like to stay in their yeah, character. Yeah, they, they,
2: they can't get away. They, they, and that's the dumbest thing you can do. It's just, you know, it's uh, I mean, it's a job, you know what I'm mm-hmm. And if you do it right, you but you got to be you still, you know? It's like, I did a picture, I'll tell you a funny story. I did a picture of Hero in the Terror with Chuck Norris. Okay? Yep, and I'm playing this crazed animal guy, and uh, and I did it because I I could do things with this character like I did with Nan, you know. And my 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 wife at the time was a, an English girl, and she's sitting down on the set watching me go to work. And so I'm sitting there bullshit with her, and uh, then I go into this scene where I walk up this ramp, and I turn around. To come down the ramp as a character, and I turn around and I went right into my persona, and I come down as just uh, unbelievable, and scared the hell out of her. She said, "I don't know if I could sleep with you." <laughs> she said, "I never seen that side of me. Why, why, where did that come from? You know?" But that's just the business, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's taking yourself and doing what you got to do, and you know. And, and I come off the set, and I'm always laughing and shit. You know, just. Telling jokes. And uh, some guys just can't do that. They just, you know, Christopher had, it was a great If Christopher Reeve would have stood up and said to the kind, it's either me or it's either Donner or I'm gone, they would have never got rid of Donner. And Donner would have done Superman 3, 4, 5, and 6. It would have been a whole different series of movies. But the Salkines were great. And they owed Lester a picture, and Lester was like night and day the
0: director of Donner. I don't know if you, have you ever seen the Donner cut of Superman two. Yes, I am a big I am a big Superman fan with Christopher Reeve because, like you were saying, it's his acting ability, which um, Richard Donner was able to pull out of him, and which he was able to bring oh himself. God. How oh, he yeah. was able to change in just a second from Clark Kent to Superman just with his body language.
2: Um, That's Richard Donner. That that was all Donner. That was all Donner. You know, and he that was Richard Donner. And it, you know, I, I watched him do that with him. You know, he and uh, hey, Chris listened. You know, he listened and he did it, and he did what he was. You know, and and it worked really, really well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it just uh, it, he became a nice guy after he got hurt. Unfortunately, you know. Uh, and I had a lot of respect for him. When he got hurt, I really felt bad for him. And he got hurt because of his own ego again. Because first of all, he wasn't that great a horseman. And he had too much horse under him. And I don't know if you know anything about horses, but, you know, when you're jumping horses, you better know what you're doing. Yeah. And he didn't wouldn't wear a helmet. You know, his ego, he wouldn't wear a helmet. And when the horse threw him, he landed on his head. That's how he broke his back. If he had had a helmet on, he might not have had that injury that happened, you know? So, but, you know, God, God makes what happens happen. And, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's uh, very sad, you know? And, and his wife was brilliant, stood by him all the time. And he became very humble when he got hurt. And, you know, he, he helped a lot of people. And, uh, Robin Williams was, went to Juilliard with him and they were great friends. And, uh, it was, a, uh, you know, and I used to sit with Robin Williams. I really liked him. He
0: was a super person. Robin yeah, Williams. Yeah, I think if I remember very, very, reading, like, Robin Williams told the family, he told them, like, don't worry about the medical bills. They're all coming he to me. Paid him.
2: That's what I mean. Yeah, there's the, funny, there's the funny part. Christopher Reeve's mother is the second wealthiest
0: woman in New Jersey. Hello. Uh, whoa. <laughs> I, did not Hello. Know, I did not know that at all. Yeah,
2: well, nobody did. And, and Robin picked up the tab for the medical bill, you know. Because they went to school. He, liked, he and Christopher were recruits. And Robin was that kind of person. Robin Williams was just a, a magnanimous individual. But he was he had his own issues. His own demons that he dealt with. Which was unfortunate because he was so talented. But, you know, when he did Mork and Mindy, it's because where he came from in Detroit, and he lived up in his attic. He used to create all these characters and stuff. And, and, and he he was preparing himself for a series that he never knew was going to come down the street. You know what I mean? And he, uh, it just, uh, he was a good guy.
0: Robin was a really super
2: guy. Yeah. Now Sorry you, I never got a chance to work with
0: him. Well, I mean, it, you can't work with everybody, sadly. That's just the way, the facts of life, you know? No,
2: I mean, it, I, I mean, I, I, I did a picture,
0: Baltimore bullet, you ever see it? Oh yes, very good. It. Jim James yeah. Coburn, Omar Sharif. Great movie. And Brooks, and that was uh, a good movie. They, again. Later.
2: Yep. They didn't have Bruce Box us their first picture as the first movie I ever did. But they didn't have the money to promote it properly. AFCO Embassy was tight on bread. And that was a good movie. I mean, Jimmy Jimmy's a super guy, boy, great guy to work with. And Omar Sharif is just he was like Mitchell. I loved Omar. Omar Omar was uh I, we were having, we were in New Orleans and, and we were eating breakfast one morning and the women were lined up outside that restaurant waiting for him. I mean, there was a, a parade of them waiting for him. Yeah? And I said to him, wow, man, you go through this all the time? He said, oh, he said, you, you have no idea. I said, Jesus God, did you carry a baseball bat around with you or what? He said, "So, but he was a, he was a Omar was a a, a heavyweight gambler, was one of the best bridge players in the world. He used to play with the elite crew in Europe playing bridge and won a lot of money and lost money. But what the crew that he played with, you had to have the money in your pocket to play whatever stakes you were playing. And he went one day foolishly without the money and, uh, and lost. And he blackballed himself in the bridge world. But he was, he developed the first backgammon game. Mechanical, you know, board game, backgammon. He was a world champion backgammon player. So here he comes on the set for Baltimore Bullet, And we had every pool hustler in America on that movie. Moscone was there, guys from Detroit, guys from Chicago. Every pool hustler, the real deal, all real guys, right? They're salivate. They couldn't wait until Omar got on the set because they wanted to play him back at him. They wanted to gamble with him. They knew mm-hmm. he was a gambler. So I went down to meet him when he came in for, off the plane, and he's getting his makeup checked, and we're sitting shooting the crap, you know, and, and it, just a super guy. And, and they surrounded his chair. Hey man, how you doing? We've been waiting for you. Well, we can't wait to play in with you. And Omar said "Guys, I just got off the plane, you know, from Egypt, and you know, a little bit, you know, just getting a little bit of check up here." And he said, "Well, I said, well, we're waiting for you. We want you to know that we're willing to participate." So they had the board all set up and everything. So he said, "Well, give me a few minutes to get done there." And they laughed and they, went, they looked at me. And he said, "You've got to come and watch this." This is going to be fun. <laughs> I said, you serious? He said, yeah, man. He said, you got to come over here and watch this. So he goes over and they and they got the board all set up and they're, they got their money in their hands and stuff. No more said, um, how much are you playing for? And they said, oh, how about $50 a point? He said, uh, how about $250 a point? And they're now really salivating. They figure they got a score and a half points. And they're and they saying, "Wow, man, yeah." He said, "We can play for more if you want." So I said, "Well, play five hundred dollars a point if you want to." And they, wow, oh, man, now are game. these are all pool hustlers. They're, these are real gambling, you know, degenerates, right? Yeah. Well, I never saw the cube go around faster in my life, or someone move around a board quicker than what this guy did. He took 50 grand off of these guys before you could write your name. And I sat there and I watched this. I said, wow. And I watched their faces drain. I mean, he just whooped them like a the stepchild, boy. And then we and, and, and they all walked away dismayed. And, and they're trying to be bravado. Whoa, wow, we'll do this again sometime. In the back of their minds, they didn't have no parts of this guy no more. And, and so he he's stuffing his money in his pocket. I said, uh, "Wow, man!" I said. You, he said, "Jack, I live this game." He said, "I invented the board game." He said, "This is like playing children here. But <laughs> he, <said, laughs> he said, "This is great lunch money; not a problem." But you know, he was—he uh, would be—he'd win money at playing bridge and then lose it at the track. It was a gamble. The fact he was gotten so much debt in France that he had to wind up being a, a host at a casino to pay off the debt to you. But but one of the nicest guys you ever and, and such a great actor. Oh my God, this guy was a great actor. Now again, another Mitchum and you know, I have been so fortunate. And Jimmy Colburn, another great actor. Oh. Jimmy was just Jimmy just a brilliant
0: and that was Bruce Boxleitner's first movie. For Jimmy James Colburn, to me a lot of his movies, he's always the coolest character there or one of the coolest people in the room. You know, when you walk You talk about presence. When he walks walks under the camera. He's like
2: that in real life. He's like that in real life. Jimmy had a really great persona about himself. And he he was a good guy. I used to go up to the house and sit and shoot shit with him. And we had a lot of great conversations. He was a a good, good guy. I I liked Jimmy a lot. He he tried to tell me, you got to get that script of yours. He read the the script, the simple man, the informer script. And he said, Jack, this is. When are you going to do this? He said, I, "I'm in for any role you want me for. I, I'm in." He said, "You got to. You got to do this picture." And I said, "Yeah, I'm going. I'm going to you get
0: know, I was a little. I had an argument with Paramount, so just kicking around. Well, then. Uh, also, said about the Baltimore Bullet. One other question: when to ask you about the Bullet, the fun house yeah. the Funhouse fight scene. <laughs> was the most unique and, and 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 interesting one. I mean what was it like filming that? Cuz that was all over the place in in a good way. We had a lot of
2: fun. We had a lot of fun. It was it was a lot of fun. I mean I enjoyed that film a lot because we again, you're talking about great actors and, and who know their craft, you know? And it's very difficult making mistakes when you have guys like that working. You know what I mean? Yep you can shoot a lot of one takes with people like that because, and, and a lot of things that people would think are difficult, you know, and we did our own stunts and stuff. And, and, and that's what great actors do, you know, uh, because it makes it that much realer. You
0: know what I mean? Yep. Cause it makes uh, it better for so, the cameraman that they, they can actually. St- oh yeah, yeah. No,
2: absolutely. You got dead on angles and boom. So it, and working <laughs> the fun house that, I mean, <laughs> Doing the mirror scene and all was trippy. It was uh, it was great. Yeah, no, I enjoyed that.
0: was a lot remember, of fun. I remember you did the mirror scene, and my the other big thing I liked was when you guys were in that um the the, the tunnel that spins. Yeah, that was. <laughs> 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 it, it worked really
2: well, you know. It just it, it was. Uh, I said there. There's things you do in the industry that are just fun. You know, you just to relax, you have a good time, and and and, it, and it's fun. You know, we just we uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that to me was the saddest part is that people that haven't seen that movie have been cheated
0: because it's a it's really a dynamite little movie, and uh, it's it's hard to find. I was able to find it on YouTube. Um, so yeah, is
2: that- the, and that always blew me away because uh, I would think that they could that would show on YouTube and all repeatedly. You know but it's a good movie.
0: a yeah. really Good movie. It, and, and for those that are listening, it, it's on YouTube currently, you know how these things change and, um, yeah. And I, I love it. That they were put out a fit release for it because, you know, a big Colburn fan, Omar Sharif, a fan of yours. And, uh, it's just to be nice to have a physical copy because then you're not held up like, Oh, is it ever going to be on YouTube again or something like that? But it's, it's,
2: oh well, yeah, I've got a copy of mine and the girl, uh, what's her name? She, uh,
0: oh, of Ronnie, what a sweetheart, she was. Ronnie!
2: Yeah, Oh, uh, Blakely. Yes, Ronnie Blakely. What a sweetheart! What a sweetheart she was, God! And she was so stoked to be playing in a picture with Coburn. I mean, she was just really stoked. And like I said, it was Bruce's first movie, and the and they had a love affair going. It was and it worked out. It was it was. I thought it was a very good movie. I mean, well, I liked about it. Yeah, Billy Moscone. Ronnie was and, a- and Jimmy, we shot it down. We actually shot the nine ball tournament that uh, down at MGM, and Paul Newman came down because his brother worked as a, as an AD on the picture. His brother was his brother was in the crew, and yeah. uh, and Paul came down because he he's a pool host. Paul could shoot some pool, and Coburn was a pretty good pool shooter.
0: Coburn was pretty good himself. Because yeah, some of those shots in the movie, you could tell it had to be him taking those shots. Because was, oh yeah, was, no, he was, could
2: play. I don't know Jimmy could play, and so could so good. Well, Omar. Omar's a gambler. Omar, oh, anything gambling, Omar Sharif had his fingers. Trust.
0: Oh, I can imagine. And then of course, your character uses a little too much explosives at the end, and I, I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's right next to the safe, and I'm thinking this this isn't going to go well. <laughs>
2: It was it i love that scene and i'm putting the, the stuff on it and i'm talking to two guys I got them tied to the, to the deal like'm t- explaining them why i'm there you know it was a, it was a, i thought it was a very good movie i really did i, I had to, i had a lot of fun doing it we it was, it was it was good it was sad that it didn't get the right exposure
0: and and that's one of the things with um, our podcast we try to do is get films that we enjoy, or at least one of the three of us, whoever's doing the picking enjoys that extra exposure so other people can be like, Oh, let's go look that one up because it's, I I like to call them, you can call them hidden gems or forgotten works. I mean, they could have been big in their day, but then, you know, 40 years later, nobody remembers it because of the generational change and movie taste change. And it's nice to bring these things back out again and say, look,
2: well, I say, you know, the the, the Baltimore bullet pool is a big deal. They still live by a place pool. And I don't know why they have never really regenerated that movie because it's timeless. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, like farewell. Farewell is a timeless kind of picture. You know, I, I, everything I've ever done, I did because I really loved the, the films I was doing, you know, and, uh, I turned down five pictures and Richard Keel did them all and made his career. God bless him. You know, yep. Richard was a good kid. I liked him. He was, you know, he was a he was a remnant of, of acromegaly. That's what killed him. I mean, that acromegaly is a killer disease. Richard was Richard was a nice guy, but I turned down five films, and he and the one film, two of the films I shouldn't have turned down. The one with the uh, with with Pryor and and Gene Wilder, and and the one with Burt Reynolds, I should have done.
0: Which, which one was with Burt Reynolds? I don't remember. I never used to talk about um, Stir Crazy, but I don't remember. Longest
2: either. Yard was one of them. Oh, my And Lord. the other one was and the other one was a uh, um, picture with the Longest Yard was one. They, no, the other one was with Eastwood. He did a picture with Clint Eastwood that uh, I should have done. It was offered to me and I was doing something. I, I just thought it was too wasn't it was a small little role and I said ah you know let him go ahead and do it
0: you know. that is I'm, I can I can imagine you obviously you know with your football background you would have been right in there for that yeah role. as long
2: as you're on back, in fact fact uh, Derney said to me uh, Bert's looking for you he wants to talk to you uh, he's got a movie he wants you to do Charlie Durney I met him in Beverly Hills one day. I said, oh, I'm getting ready to go to Europe. I got some things to do. He said, Ah, oh, Jackie he said you really would like to do because I met Bert. We were doing Superman. He was in London doing something. I forget what he was doing. And he and I used to have lunch together. And Bert was a good guy. He was an athlete. You know, we had a lot of similarities. We chatted about stuff. Uh, and, and he was a you know another good actor. Bert Reynolds. Bert Reynolds was a he was a, he was a comedic kind of serious kind of guy. He could do both, you know? Oh, exactly. Uh, he did, okay. Yeah. I mean, he did a great picture with, with Eastwood, where they they, they were fist fighting. His. And, uh, you know, he's a, they, you know, Burt's, does
0: some nice work. I like, him. I like a lot of his work. Um, you know, you talk about comedic, where smoking the band that you talk about action, oh, danger, yeah. deliverance. Oh yeah. Um, the longest, it was,
2: was a killer. Oh yeah. Logan the Bandit was was a, was a great film but he he puts a lot of comedy even when he does serious work. He has that that just an instinct about him, you know. Uh he has he just he's a good actor and he does his thing. He's Burt Reynolds, that's him, you know. And you love working with people like that because it just you're real, you're you're, you're having a good time, you know. Exactly. And, and that's like I
0: said with the Bull. It's sad that they didn't I I can't believe they haven't taken that movie and really just really regenerated. It's way better to me than the Color of Money. Oh yeah, and and, and, because I've seen both, and this one, this one I enjoy way more than the other one, and for various reasons. I'm not gonna, I don't want to it in the movie, but I I think this one is a superior pull movie. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. I mean, like I said, Newman was down on the set when we were shooting, because he was playing pool with
2: guys. No. And his brother, he came down to say hello to his brother, and uh, and we got a kick out of hanging out with him. Paul's a really nice guy. Just Paul, was, Paul was a super super individual, just a down earth beer drinking guy. Drinks, but uh, he drank so much beer and he never gained any weight. Just to blow me away. I mean, he would drink one and I said, "Wow, man, you drink?" He said, ah, John, I like beer." I said, "But you don't get You're skinny little guy." He said, well, "You know." I was very lucky that I got to do things that I really wanted to do, you know. And, and, and like, I'm glad you saw The Bullet because The Bullet was a good, was a good film, you know. And it's a uh, Barcher Die. Barcher Die, they, they showed, they showed the, uh, the film was too long. It was four hours. And, and they have it. There's people that have seen it in segments, day one and two, part one, part two, which shows you the whole film. Which makes a lot more sense. You know? I really didn't know it was but four you hour version. Put, no, there is a four hour version out there. There actually is. There's a four, and if you watch the four hour version, you you'll see a lot of where they cut scenes that made it look so like drastically cut. You know, uh, because it was just so we did some neat things, and we, we we went down in the desert, and we were we were in Almeria, Spain. We, we were, we were all over the place, boy, shooting that and we wound up in Arizona because so Hackman got hurt uh, on a horse. He fell off a horse; he got hurt, so we wound up finishing it in Arizona. But we were
0: in Morocco. We were we were all over. The place. I will say, your character Ivan in um, "March or Die," um, he went out like a boss at the end scene. I mean, he's like throwing people all over the place. I mean, it was it was what you would expect. <laughs> Oh yeah, no it,
2: it, I mean they we they did that shot. If you remember the picture, they did the shot where it was up on the like a panoramic shot up on the on the on the on the mountain where they're all marching and everything and they're on their horses. And I couldn't be in the shot because when I got on the horse by shooting at that long range it looked like my legs were on the ground. <laughs> so the camera guy said to me, John Oak. We can't put you in that shot. He said, it looks like you're walking a horse down. <laughs> he said, Do you mind not being in the shot? I said, Hell no, but you know, going to mess something up. No, forget about it. He said, Because of the angle of shooting it up in the air and stuff. And I said, Yeah, no problem. But uh, we had, I mean, that was, there were some huge sets on that thing. I mean, and we had some interesting characters in that. There was a guy, Marcel Bazoufi. And then there was a guy named Rufus, who was one of the biggest Pam guy, Pam, you know, comedians out of France. And today he's a big producer. Rufus is, a, and what a nice guy! God, he was a fun. Guy. When I had more laughs with him. He was, God, he was like uh, uh, Ollie and, uh, what the two comedian guys, the fat guy and the, and the skinny guy, Laurel Hardy. Yes. He was like, he was like Laurel. He had the same long face and he's great I, my
0: God, that, that was the one who had family. the uh, tuxedo, I think, that you guys, uh, like, they wanted to throw his stuff away and they kind of hid it underneath his uh, mattress or something. Was that, I'm trying to remember if that was the same this
2: was, that played the, one of the sergeants. Oh, one of the sergeants. Like, uh, oh, I'm yeah, sorry, yeah, I'm thinking like of a, a different guy.
0: I'm thinking of a different person. And
2: then there was, there were, there were a couple guys there that were big actors in France. Uh, because there were a lot of European actors that were in that film, because because of Terrence Hill. And Terrence Hill, God, he was primo Europe, Very good. Yeah. He did the Spaghetti Westerns with Bud Bud Spencer.
0: Yeah, my name. Slap is, him and draw him. Yeah, the Trinity series or uh, two movies. Yeah. And then my favorite movie of his is My Name Is Nobody with Henry Fonda. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sergio
2: Leone, boy. He's- he, uh, turns, was turns had a great look. He was a northern Italian kid, blue eyed, blonde hair. He was from northern Italy. And, uh, he, uh, <laughs> he, we were at the, we were doing March or Die. And like I said, it was the first movie he, he talked English in, you know? Yep. And we were at the, we were at the sandings when we were being attacked, and he and I are right next to each other. And, uh, and of course, it, you have the camera sitting there. And you're supposed to be visualizing all these people charging at you, you know, with a reaction shot. And we're standing there with our guns and stuff, and, and, and he threw his gun down and he stood up. And he said, "I can't do this." He said, "I said, how how do you expect me to to give you a reaction when I'm looking at a camera? I'm not looking at bring the horsemen and all this stuff in." And I said, uh, "Turn." It's, it's what they call acting, man. You know kind of envision what you see, you know. This is what we call acting. This is what it's all about. Well, you know, I'm, uh, I am I, I got to and hey, the same thing happened when he was uh, they, when they were doing it when Hackman catches him on the boat and makes him drink the drinks, yeah? Yep. So he's he's drinking, he, he has to drink so many of these drinks and, and he tells the director he says, you got to put booze in there. How am I supposed to really have that feeling? a reaction, of what, of what's going on? So they kept putting, and he's throwing them down like this, and they get down to it, and he shoot all over Hackman. I mean, he went, he went to deliver a line and just come up because he had pushed all this bullshit down. him and he and he was getting drunk, and he and Hackman was going. I thought Hackman was going to kill him. <laughs> actually said, send that kid back to acting school, please. He was, oh, was genius,
0: methodical. I mean, you talk about two totally different um, acting styles, but one thing I want to ask you about Terrence Hill there's a lot of scenes where he's doing um, aerobics. Is that really him? You know, like, Yeah. So he was doing the training oh, no. stuff he, and all that he's stuff. He's another one
2: that all that, he did all of his own stunts, running on the train and all that stuff. He didn't want anybody doing his, he wanted him. This is me, man. I said, uh, yeah, you really don't have, that's a long shot, man. Nobody's gonna. He said, oh, no, said, it's got to be me. No, it's got to be me. But oh. that was all him. And that's one thing I liked about him. He was bald. So, and, and, he, and then he married a girl. She was a school teacher from Massachusetts. Gorgeous, strawberry blonde chick, nice chick. I said, wow, man, said, all the women that chase you in Italy and everything all over the world, you'll marry some poor little kid. Kid from Massachusetts. <laughs> oh, she's great, man. She's a great lady. And he can already speak English. So he's, but he, I, I like Terrence. Terrence
0: was a great kid. I really liked him. He, was,
2: he learned a lot doing March or die I worked with Hackman. Yeah, you're yeah. gonna,
0: you're gonna learn from Hackman one way or the other. It sounds like you know if, if you if you're oh,
2: if, if, you, if you're not prepared he walks away. Yeah, yeah. That he walks away. I mean, he's they uh, tell you flat out do your homework before you come on the seat. I understand Hackman, what you're doing.
0: Speaking of Hackman walking away, when they go back to Superman, he uh, wouldn't come back. Yeah. He wouldn't come back because of the Donner switch. And I got to give him the credit, you know, you, and I wish
2: he would. That's what I Christopher said. If, would've would've, done that. if, if Christopher would have done that, I wasn't going to go back. Uh, but if Christopher would have stood up and said, no Donner, no me. And that was all about money. They come up with a thousand excuses and all, but Donner, Lived, eat, and slept Superman, and so did Mankowitz. They just loved the characters, and and and, and you can tell if you see the Donner cut of Superman Two. We yes. had shot like eighty-five percent of the movie. Yep, they had to stop shooting two, so they could finish one, because they had a delivery date. To me, you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, and okay. I knew when I saw Lester come on the set, something was up. And all the rumors started, this, that, and the other thing. And then I talked to somebody from London. They said, they owe them a picture. And the all kinds were notorious. I mean, they they used to do pictures in Hungary when the Iron Curtain was up. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Yeah? Yeah. So they would take a crew into Hungary and get everybody over there. And then they'd turn around and say, oops, one of the financiers just fell out. We're going to have to cut your salary in half or send you home well now they're there they make commitments and so they, they took the beat and they stayed and finished the movie right But so that's what people do in the movie business and when we when i went up to meet donner and we were at the uh, plywood studio and the whole crew was lining up to get paid and they wouldn't take a check and I said to David Tomlin, who was the AD on the picture, and he was working on Watch or Die With And I said, David, what the hell is going on here, man? He said, oh, you don't know about the Salkind. I said, what are you talking about? And he told me the story about how they did these pictures in Hungary and, and these guys knew, worked with them. So they they wanted cash. They wouldn't take a dime, right? So... And this story is in the book where they did the making of Superman, making of uh, of Superman. Pierce Bangler, and we're working like about six weeks, something like six, six or seven weeks. And it's dismal and it's raining in, in London. And it was the first time we had like a three day break, and it was a time in from London you could take a plane on a Friday. And if I got on the Concorde, I could be in LA three hours before I left London. And uh, so I flew back home, which I didn't tell anybody because you're not supposed to do that. Being a principal in the picture, God forbid something happens, the plane blows up. So I flew. I forgot. I oh a couple days break. I got and I had this picture. I'm telling you about the Irish picture that we were getting going. So I flew back home. And I'm in Beverly Hills, and I'm at. There was no cell phones then. So I'm at a pay booth, and I call my accountant, and I said, uh, "I'm in town, and uh, we should have a lot of money in the bank, and I I want to do some business while I'm here with farewell, my lovely. I mean, with uh, Mark, proud of a simple man. And she said, uh, "Jack, uh, we have a lot of paper in the bank." I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, these guys are paying you with what they call nondescript checks, which have to individually go back to the bank in Zurich, and it takes a month or two to clear them. I said, are you kidding me? He said, no, I never saw anything like this before in my life, but that's the deal. You have a lot of paper in the bank, but there's not the money's not there. So I said, okay, just hold on to your britches. So I hang up and I call Collect from that phone to London to Pierce Spangler's office. And he gets on the phone. He said, my God, I said, what are you doing in LA? You got to work on Monday. I said, uh, you know, I got this problem. My, my doctor tells me I got a little crink in my back and, and he thinks I had to lay in the sun for a little while because uh, until I get some money in my bank account, I don't think this thing's going to, the stress, I don't think to sort of go away. He said, what do you mean? What are you talking about? I said, I said, I got a lot of paper in my bank account, but there's no money there. I said, I flew back home because I got some business to do, but the money's not in my account. I said, you know, I, I think I might have to stay here until, well, no, hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute. Said, hold on a second. Just wait a minute. Hold on a minute. She said, you can't, blah, 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 blah. So I said, um, so I hung up, and uh, 15 minutes later, my accountant called, <laughs> but she said, I don't know what you did," she said. But <laughs> all of a sudden, <laughs> you got money in your account. Everything's fine and kosher. So at that time, you could take a plane like eleven o'clock on a, on a Sunday and be in Lo- in London at Heathrow or the other airport at seven in the morning. You know, and then I went straight to work. So I did that. I got and I go down to the studio and I walk straight up there to Pierre Spangler's office. And uh, Trudy was this girl that worked for him, Secretary. And I said, Geez, Trudy, give me a favor, will you please? Would you give me something to drink? You know, I just got off the plane, it's been a long flight. And, oh, yeah, Jack, no problem. Pierre's in the office waiting. So I go in his office and, uh, and he's looking at me like enraged that I made them put this. And he just had come back from France because he had to go over and explain to the old man, Spangler why he sent this money to america and so he's sitting at his desk and he's i said "Um, here's the deal man said you know i go to work every day and uh you pay me i said you know if you know anything about me if you don't you should pick up a phone and ask the people because uh, you're about to go in my backyard in new york to shoot some scenes i said and uh you screw around with my paycheck one more time. I'll drop you in the Hudson with a camera on your head. And I pulled him across the desk and I looked at him straight in the eye. And he said, you're threatening me. And I dropped him back in the seat. I said, no, I'm making you a solemn promise. This ain't about a threat. This is about a promise, son. He said, I come to work. I work. You pay me. No problem. I said, and I have not caused any friction on any set or anything. I come to work every day. We're having a good time doing this movie. I said, but uh, don't play any games with me. Let me tell you that right now. And he said, oh, you. <laughs> <laughs> so I, and I walked out and I left. And, and I never, ever had another problem. And neither did anybody else. Never had another problem with the paycheck. <laughs> and, and they did a, they wrote a book about the making of Superman. And Spangler told that story about how I pulled across the kids, <laughs> You know. I laughed and I, just, you know, I, just, I laughed. I, I was laughing when I was off. I, just, you know, they, they were just so bad with certain things. I mean, they're having dinner one night with Donner and Brando and Brando had just come on to go to work and he'd worked a couple of days and, and they're having dinner and, and, uh, the Salkinds and Pierce Bangler and, uh, and Donner and, uh, and, Do- and Brando says, you know, guys, he said, we're really working some serious hours here. He said, you know, um, maybe we should take a day off, rest up a little bit here, you know, we're pushing, pushing the envelope pretty hard. And, uh, Donner said, well, you know, Marlon, we could probably, and he's getting kicked under the table by the, to by by Pierce Banger <laughs> because they need the work. They need Brando to get on tape so they can go to the bank and get the money, you know? And, uh, And they're kicking, and and Spanger said, oh, Marlon, it cost us too much money to take a day off. And Brandon says, and this is a true story, Brandon says, "Uh, how much it cost a day shooting? And they said, oh, like $350,000. And Brandon sat back and he said, yeah, let's take a day off, I'll pay. (laughs) And they paid him like $4 million in gold in front to do the film. He said, I will take a day off and I'll pay Oh my God, they almost had a heart attack. And Donner spoke up, he said oh, Marlon really we we're on a real tight time schedule and you know and Donner was a real diplomat. So Brando <laughs> brandon was what Brando was a wonderful individual. Believe me when I tell you, I had a lot of fun with Marlon. Marlon was Marlon was a trip. He was he had this great dry sense of humor, you know? Yep. And he would tell him, And he'd do something. He was telling me he was actually doing a joke, with, but you thought he was dead serious. He told me a story about one time he was auditioning for, I think it was a play, and he's sitting in front of this whole row of producers sitting at the table, and he had to simulate a burning candle. So he goes through this whole method acting thing, and he did it so well people started sweating and loosening their tie. <laughs> hey, it was like they were feeling the heat from the candle or something, you know, he just, because he personified it. So, and that's the kind of chemistry. He had. He was, he was, uh, yeah, I had a lot of time for Marlon. Marlon was a good guy.
0: Yeah. one was a good guy. He, he's, he, he was an awesome actor and I, you know, it's one of those things, you know, it's, even though I never got a chance to talk with them, that's one of the things I love when I get to interview people that I actually worked with and did stuff outside of the work with different people. You can start to get at the real sense of the story of the person, except because you, you know, cause so many people want the, the gotcha stuff or the tablet, the tabloid stuff. And I, I really don't care about that. I just want to get to the, the general, what was that person like? We all have, as you said, good things and bad things that we've all brought. And I, I hate when people just focus on the negative and, you know, and it, it is part of the person and you bring it up, but it's just, you, you don't want to, to me, it's not worth saying to somebody one thing and then saying, Oh yeah, we got this. This is a nice sound clip. And it's just like,
2: it's not worth it. Well, I got you know, tell you something like Brando, Brando stayed in in a place right by the studio, which is outside 35 minutes away from London. He never even stayed in London out every night or for, for paparazzi to be all around him. He was focused on what he was doing. And he lost a lot of weight to do Superman. He looked terrific. I mean, he was really, he did uh, the Apocalypse. He was huge. Marlon had gained a lot of weight because he sat at home up on the hill. He did the cross street from Jack Nicholson up on up Mahalo Drive. Uh-huh. And he ate he used to eat all the time. He loved he loved food, you know, and he's and he was a, a very reclusive individual, you know. He uh, but he lost a tremendous amount of weight. He come on, Superman said he looked brilliant. He trimmed way down, boy. He looked great, and he uh, and he was very, like I said, dedicated to what he's doing. You know what I'm saying? So he lived right by the studio. Never, he never had a little house there, and and, and he was. Uh, but I used to go see him and I'd say, wow, man, why are you because I, I lived in London. Well, London, I knew, I, I boxed in London, knew a lot of people in London. And, uh, I said, why, you know, how come you don't, why you come in the city well, take you to a great Italian restaurant? He said, yeah, you're talking about San Lorenzo, that's your joint. And I said, yeah. He said, but Jackie yeah, okay. said, you know, I, I'm here to work. I don't need all the glitz and glamour. He said, I do all that in my life. He said, no. I got a few honeys that come visit me here, and I'm very happy. <laughs> I don't need anybody. I don't need. I don't need to stir up the press. He said, I'm, "I'm here doing what I got to do, and I'm not here that long. I'm only here a couple weeks." He said, "If I was here as much as you guys are, maybe I would have done state in London." I do the drive every day. He said, I'm right here. You know? So he's really, he's really kind of down to earth, individual like that. You know what I mean? Yep. And, uh, I Was like Mitchum. I Mitchum came over to do uh, the big sleep mm-hmm. while I was doing Superman. So he was staying in London, and because they were shooting in London, and he wouldn't go out. He wouldn't go out on the streets unless I was with him. Really? Because yeah. oh yeah, I mean, and I said to him, "Why?" He said, "No, you." So we're walking down the. Uh, uh, Nice bridge and not far from where he lived, by Harrods, and walking down the street one night, and, and somebody came up and asked him for an autograph, and he said, come on, man, let's just keep walking. And I looked at him, and I said, well, you, know, he said, well, you want to see what happens if I stop? And he stopped the sign, One, all of a sudden, there's 50 people around. And I mean, jumping at him, pulling, you know, now I'm pushing people away from him. I grabbed them, pulled them. I said, let's go. And, and we went into Harrods, he had to get flints for his lighter, you know? So we go into Harrison. We up the, the little smoke stand with us. They sell cigarettes and flints. So we go up, we go to Flint. And all of a sudden, this woman came out of nowhere. And she said, Robert, I read this great article about your wife allows you to mess around. And she raised her leg. And she came flying at him. we like <laughs> like, and I had pulled it out of the way. She went right into the cigarette stand there, and I pulled them away, and we, and we went out the side door and jumped in the cab. And I said, Jesus, man, that kind of shit happened to you all the time? He said, you have no idea. <laughs> and he said, I said, wow. He said, what do you think I don't go out by myself? For? He said, you go with me wherever we go. He said, you yeah, know, you're going with me, kid. That's the bottom line. You understand that? So, uh, I, I laughed. He made me laugh, too which was great. He
0: was, he was just true. Yeah. Which is what a lot of people don't understand when they're asking somebody for an autograph, it's like, um, and, and they don't, and they get turned down. They take it so personal, but there's so many factors that go into, you know, and is there personal? Well, like, like he, it, he said to me, time?
2: he said, you know, you're on a street, Jack. He said, and once you stop for one person, then people start looking and they realize who you are and bam, you know, uh, and and I say, wow, man! And I never really had that problem per se because of my size. I think, you know, I mean, she was a pretty big guy, but uh, I, I think that uh, it's one of the things that, like, I've stopped and signed autographs for people, and and, and, and when I do a couple of them, enough is enough, and I walk away, and no one says. You know? But I saw them gathering around. I said, "Holy shit!" And he's like an icon in London that people just love to and uh, he was. uh, but well, he wouldn't go out unless I went with him. He said, uh, you, I want to go out for a walk. You've got to come with me. I, said, no, I was doing Superman. He was doing the big sleep.
0: Now, if your character Non, I like your, your childlike portrayal. It reminded me so much of Lenny from Of Mice and Men. Well,
2: I'll tell you something. When I went to see Donner uh, with Hackman, and, uh, Donner and I were discussing Non, because the original character Non was a, Genius scientist, and they lobotomized him. You know, and, uh, and Donner said to me, "What do you think about playing uh, a mute character?" And I said, uh, "I said I embrace that. You know, I said let me tell you something really in front. Of I said, you know, uh, Jackie Gleason was a good friend of mine, and he did a picture called Gigo. and he won an Oscar playing this mute guy. I said, and if I ever got a chance to play a character like that, I was going to embrace it." And Nan was a perfect character because Turns was a vicious general. Sarah was a man eater. Somebody had to relate to the kids in the audience, so I said I'm going to take this brutish guy and I'm going to play him like a child, learning how to work your eyes and learning how to walk and talk. You know, never going to talk, but learn. And, and so I did that, and it came out pretty well. You
0: know. I
2: thought really it was fortunate.
0: Yeah, I thought it was excellent because you're, you're kind of rooting for him and against him at the same time. As I, I was you know, I've had
2: people, I've had people come up to me at, at, at Comic con and they and they say to me, uh, first of all, I remember first Comic Con I went to. Someone go, my God, you can actually talk!'" <laughs> <laughs> so I said, "God, I must have played that character pretty well." So and, and, th- and then they said to me, "Wow, I was a kid. I saw that movie." You scared the shit out of me, but I loved the characters. I just, because it was like a child, you know, so it related to a lot of kids. And still today, you know, children go and see that film. And, and I get so many great remarks about how childlike Non was, this Bruce character being so childlike. And, uh, so I, I think, I, I guess I must have done something right.
0: Oh, I definitely think so because um, I'm I'm terrified of Zot. I'm terrified of, you know, or, or, or Terrence Stamp. I'm terrified of Sarah Douglas. It's like, I don't want to be alone with either one of those. Nan was the one person I felt like, you know, if, if it's just him and I, and we were playing some type of like childlike game, I could probably live. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I mean, that's so I got my point across in the film pretty good. Thanks.
0: Oh, you're you're welcome. It was it was excellent, and I'm sure, I mean, you, that film was cutting edge for all the wire work with because it really made you believe. We people broke could fly.
2: technology rules. I tell you, we broke rules of technology. In fact, there's a new technology out right now that they're doing in New Zealand, where you don't have to go on locations anymore, and they're doing what we did with Superman. We shot VistaVision on VistaVision. We were doing the flying shot, the fight scene, all that stuff. We had, we were on this, there was this big 70 foot screen and the pole arms that came through it and body molds that we laid in and we had movements that we could do this, this, where we were flying under bridges, flying around a building and we're up 70 feet off the ground and we're, you know, and they shot us into the movie. The movie was on the screen behind us and they filmed us into the film. So it was, and it was tedious and long doing it but it was like VistaVision on VistaVision. And and, and that company were the pioneers at that. They would have really had that cinematography down, but they went bankrupt because of the They bled them down. and I I said, wow, man. Because now that's what they're doing. This technology they're doing now is the same thing. They're shooting VistaVision on VistaVision. So you don't ever have to leave a set anymore. They can put anything right there. Boom. And we're uh, building a studio in, in Nevada, and we're going to bring that to America, the technology. Because you'll be able to you'll save budgets, price of budget. You will have smaller crews. You you just you'll be able to control the picture one hundred percent. That sounds a great awesome. Great idea.
0: That sounds awesome. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, like I'll we're
2: done, that. we're waiting for the merger to finish with AT and T and Warner Brothers. Because AT and T bought Warner Brothers. And I've got a storyline that is a killer that I want to go back and bring Christopher back on set because we can do it with a hologram and it's been proven that that works. And we have a storyline that's dynamite or it's going to blow people away. I mean, imagine taking the three villains out of jail and with a technology that we're going to get from a planet that allows us to do this, changes their whole mon- mental persona thinking to where they're going to reverse my lobotomy and I'll be able to talk and the three villains will become cohorts of Superman and they will battle all these other planets that are coming in with these villains from towards earth. The so Superman will have his own little arm and we're not going to do the killing. We're going to go back and do the picture like we did it, where there was no killing in it, but you know, putting people in jail and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah. I'm yeah. looking forward
0: to it. Yeah, I don't like the movies where, where Superman has any killing in and, it. And, 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 I don't want to talk too well, much about so man steel, the got, Man of Steel. The Man of Steel so they dark. They just got
2: darker and darker and darker, man. You know, it's uh, and I don't know why. And, and now Warner Brothers is getting their butt kicked by Marvel. It's coming out with all this stuff. And, and if we go back and we do this, this will take the Superman franchise right through the steel again. You know?
0: Oh, exactly, because I think what their big mistake was they made Superman like Batman. That's like, oh, we'll make him dark. Superman is always supposed to be hope. He's always supposed to be the, the opposite. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, they got to take the understanding that Superman was the first American superhero. You know what I mean? Yep. And and it was the all-American way, and, and, and they changed all that. They should never change his uniform. They should never, I mean, I don't know where these guys got their brains at, but they... They just went darker and darker and darker. And I said, "Wow, it's, uh, it's sad." You know, it is. Superman four was terrible. Three was three was not great, but Superman four was even worse. And Canon did. It wasn't even a major studio that did four. Uh, they and they like Chris wrote the script, and it was all ego factor,
0: and it was a terrible. terrible yeah, thinking that one even cut the um, the um, budget by half, and then it, the things they went. You know, there's. There's a lot of things that happen, as you know, behind the scenes. Where Well,
2: Canon Films did. Canon Films is, is like Salkine's, but worse. You know, oh. they, 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 they were shortchanged
0: people. Yep. Now, um, you talked about the Hero and the Terror, where you played Simon Moon, and how you were able to turn on a dime. You worked with Chuck Norris.
2: Good guy. Chuck was a good guy, yeah. We had a lot of great conversations because of his martial arts deal. And uh, and Bruce Lee was a friend of mine. Really? And, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Bruce, Bruce was Lee a was a kid. friend I of
0: yours?
2: Yeah, uh, I like Bruce a lot.
0: Uh, what was he like? I like
2: Bruce. Bruce was, a, Bruce was a real... He was a dedicated guy to the arts. I mean, he really... But he was doing something that they didn't want him to do. He was teaching... White people secrets of China that they did not want him to do that. And they that's that, that's what killed him. Uh, but he didn't care. He he just felt that people should know. And when he when he when they broke his back and he got hurt, he fixed himself, and he did it with Winchuck. And he, you know, he was a very strong-willed kid. And he used to he would go down into South LA, man, bad neighborhoods. And I said, Bruce, what are you doing? He said, Oh man, he said, I'll take a gun off of them, strip it off of them When I said, Dave pulled the trigger, you're dead man, There's bullets, you ain't playing with it. Nah they're not quick enough. <laughs> he was he was uh he was a, he was a gutsy kid. I, I liked him a lot. He was very dedicated to what he did. Really dedicated to what he did. And he was a good actor and, and he got robbed that uh, when they did the Green Hornet. I mean uh, you know, he was supposed to do that role, and, and there, there you go again. Talk about racism! What they're doing today—they didn't want an Oriental to have a lead role like that. And even Bobby Wagner said, "But well, he's got a mask on." I mean, what's the difference? You know? And they just didn't—they uh, didn't want to make a star out of. You know, they weren't ready for that. They well, the so audience was he- I don't. I never agree with that at all. And I know they did when it, when David Carradine did that the series.
0: Kong he was Fu. supposed to do that. Oh, yeah, Kong Fu. Yeah. That was what I was about to bring up was that Bruce Lee was robbed out of Kong Fu for those same reasons.
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly why. I mean he uh Bruce was uh and he was a good actor. Bruce was a very good actor. He really but he I mean he did talk about doing your own stunts, man. <laughs> he he was a very capable young man, trust me. And a nice guy. I mean, just a nice, nice guy. I mean, um, but anybody, boxers or football, any athletes that I ever knew that were very good at the sport they did are basically majority of them really nice people. But they got nothing to prove. So their egos are, there's a few maybe in every school room, but a uh, majority of, of, of good athletes, I mean, I love Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali and I were good friends. And, and you never could meet a nicer guy. One-on-one. talked to him one-on-one, boy. He was unbelievable. He was... Uh, I mean, I... I beat a kid in, in Detroit, Alvin Blue Lewis, who was number two in the world. And uh, he called me up and I was in L.A. and I just had my license taken away because of organized crime, which was all bone. So he called me from Detroit he said, you want to fight Al- Alvin Blue Lewis in Detroit? And I said, can I get a license? Oh, yeah, man. We'll give you a license. No problem. I said, when's the fight? Next week. I said, send me a ticket. You'll take the fight? I said, send me a ticket. He was supposed to fight Buster Mathis, and it fell out. And they were looking for, and Blue Lewis had just won 13 rounds with Lee in Ireland. And he came home, and he beat Terrell and another good fighter. And they were looking to make another alley. fight. And if he beat me, then it would be, we're push him into another alley. So they called me on the phone and said, absolutely, boom. They go to Detroit. Now I've got a lot of good friends in Detroit. And one of the kids that ran the black area of Detroit was little, he was an Olympic fighter, Ronnie Harris, very good fighter, but he was a gangster. He ran Jefferson Boulevard. And uh, he said, You really going to take this fight? I said, Yeah, I'm out there and I'm training. And, and the guy, uh, Lou Lewis's trainer, was a famous trainer. And he sent a guy down to watch me work out to see what kind of shape I was in, and uh, and I hit the speed bag for an hour, worked out about ten rounds on a heavy bag, then skip rope for an hour. So they were sweating bullets. I could say, <laughs> "This guy's in pretty good shape, man. I don't know about what you're doing. So we fight, and uh, and I got paid X amount of dollars for the fight, but I had this little kid, Ronnie Harris, who's a gangster. I said, "I want you to bet every single round." He said, Jack, you're in Detroit, Little his hometown. Are you sure you want to do this? I said, bet every single round. I'm going to beat this guy 10 out of 10. And I beat this guy really bad. In like fact, the last three rounds of the fight, I stopped hitting him in the head. Because I cut him up so bad. I broke his ribs. I broke his elbow. I don't think he ever fought again. And when the fight was over, I think I got paid like four grand for the fight. And I won 98000 betting it <laughs> so, I, I go to uh deer park up where ali is a camp and i go up to see muhammad ali and uh, i said you know you and i really got to get this on this is time i said i just beat this clown lewis he said well I, that's a, that's the a reason why we should fight and, and 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 we're and the press the press are all there because i just beat this guy with big news and and he and I go into a room and, and he said, "Now watch this, Jack. We close the door and we're kicking, kicking the door and punching. <laughs> he and I are in a fight. <laughs> and we're scared. He's yelling and I'm yelling. And, and, and so we come back out and they're all standing there like, well, what happened? What happened? And he's laughing like hell. So we get, we'll go to sit down and eat dinner. And he said to me, Jack, he said, if I give you a fight, are you really going to try and beat me? I said, son, let me tell you something. For the very first time in my career, I'm going to go away to a camp like you guys do. And I'll train for a couple of months. And when you come in that ring, you better bring a gun with you, because You're going to have a problem in your head. And he looked at I me and he said, two stakes, please. <laughs> <laughs> he me. He, he was such a great athlete. He would have been great at any sport he participated in. You know? And the way they jerked his career around, it was really sad. I, I have a lot of empathy for what happened in a couple of years that he lost in his prime. you know, yep. He was just a great athlete he was, and, and a great guy. He was really a great guy. He really was. So I've been very lucky in my life and in, in the boxing world and in the film world. you know. I, like you said, i worked with a lot of tremendous actors. So a lot of people don't get the opportunity to do that. You know?
0: And it was great. Speaking of fights, I know this will never happen, but if you were in your prime and Chuck Norris is in his prime, who would win?
2: He had no shot. He had no shot. He was too small. And, and I was faster than him. And I was bigger and much stronger. And I could move. And, and I studied an art. That's what he and I really got into. Bruce, that's what made Bruce and I so close. <clears throat> I had a friend of mine in Rhode Island who was a martial art freak. And his father was the banker for Raymond Patriarch. And he owned all the car lots and he owned the car agencies. And, uh, a very wealthy man. And his son loved martial arts. And he, uh, We smuggled a guy. He did smuggle a guy out of China. I'm going back in the early 70s. Smuggled a guy out of China that uh, was a no-no to do. And this guy was a direct descendant of Master Po, which was uh, an art that uh, started. From this art came the lines of Tai Chi and all the other arts. It was a Pakwa And... This this guy was a little China guy with a with a pot belly, and he, he he wouldn't take money. He wanted a job, we gave him a job in a Chinese restaurant, and he was thrilled with that. And he was teaching us. We paid him to teach us. He was teaching us the art of aqua. And uh, I watched this guy do some things. I saw a guy take a full swing at him with a samurai sword, and he caught it with two fingers like that.
0: He called and with two fingers it, right out of the air.
2: Boom, like that. And we were doing a, what they call push art, where you, you put your back of your hand together with the other guys, and you push back and forth to get into the energy of the body. And then he would take his hand and his other hand, and he would push inside of his palm like that against you. He hurled me right over my tin cup like I flipped in the air, backwards. I said, "Wow!" And I mean, I had no control. He just picked and picked me right off the ground. I said, "Okay." And He taught us this art. We studied under him for a long time, and uh, it was it's a breathing exercise, and it's all inner inner. It's an art that teaches you how to defend yourself from every angle. So different than kung fu, which is straightforward and backwards. It was almost like what Bruce Lee did, Wing Chun. Much more methodical it was like like allowing yourself to be like a, like a water body of water flowing. You now, in allowing, and I still do it to this day. And, I, and I'll show you something. And if you give me your email address, I'll send you a book that this guy wrote. I mean, it comes from the from the fourth. His his great grandfather was a direct descendant of Master Po, and. He did a bad thing. He was he was like a naughty kid. So his father locked him in a room for four years, they fed him under the door and everything. And when his father died, they let him out. He was like uh, like a house man. And to prove that he should take over for his father, his father had this throne chair made out of solid rosewood, really heavy wood, right? Yep. He put his hand in the palm of his hand in the chair and he raised it eye level. He could disperse that much energy through his body to separate the molecular structure of the chair and put air in between it, to raise it up like a twig. Okay. And we studied this art that these people did. That if you're sitting where you are right now, if you stick your tongue to the roof of your mouth and breathe deeply with your nose, close your mouth, Breathe deeply with your nose, you'll breathe with your stomach, not your chest. You'll bring more oxygen into your body. You understand? Can you feel that? You you'll breathe actually with, with your stomach, which is your cheek. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Now if you sat you sat or laid at night and you did that repetitively, kept breathing like that, and then you clear your mind of anything that would that caused you trauma in your life. Pick a color an incident, something that gave you bliss yeah, and you put that in your mind and you do this breathing over and over and over again you, you, you'll you find yourself from the top of your head, you'll be pushing down all the negativity if you're a person that sees aura, some people can see an aura you'll see the green go out of your feet just the aura so if, you, if you allow yourself but you'll feel Every part of your body, as you and you relax, and you'll come to a relaxed state, more relaxed than you've ever been in your life. Because when you sleep, your body works harder when you're sleeping than it does when you're awake. People don't understand. But this is a relaxing state. So if you sat and you did this every day till you got it to where your body breathes for itself, and you come to a state where if you sat for an hour to a two-hour period, it's like sleep in eight hours. But your mind and your body are totally, and you heal. You can heal yourself. It's just, a, I, mean, I I went through a, a heart procedure the last couple of years. Where they, uh, I, they went inside. I was at the Cleveland Clinic, and they were ablating part of my heart inside, cleaning some stuff up and stuff like that. So they, I laid on a table. And in Cleveland, they don't, they won't knock you out. They put you into a, a stupor because yeah. they want your heart to function while they're doing the work in there. Yeah. So they never had anybody. I laid on the table for over eight hours, never moved the muscle. And they kept saying to me, you, cause I can take my heartbeat down to 30 with this breathing exercise. And they kept saying, you're awake. Are you still with us? They thought we was dying. <laughs> <laughs> I scared the hell out of me, but it, it's an amazing art. And if you if you practice it and you do it, you sit or even in your chair and you just breathe and breathe, and you feel your body going into a state like you just you can take so much air up. More oxygen goes into your body, and you got to stick your tongue right against the roof of your mouth to breathe deep with your nose and blow it out your mouth and, and slowly, and you'll feel it. You come from your stomach, you're breathing because you're putting more. You're going past your chest, and you're breathing with your stomach, which pulls more oxygen into your body. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. They, The arts are an amazing deal if you learn them and you learn them well. You know, and that's why I could do fights for a weeks notice and I never got tired. And I breathed in between rounds, and I you know I wasn't as sharp as I should have been, but I wasn't pooped and fatigued. And, and I, I proved it with a kid. When I retired from boxing, I took a young man that they threw out of the Kronk gym, Frankie Lyles. He was a South Pole. He was from Philadelphia. And he uh, was undefeated. They, they just said he was a boring fighter and blah, blah. So he came out to me. I, I was at the Goose and Gym training. And, uh, and I seen this kid and I watched him. And I said, wow, man. I heard his story. And I sat him down and I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do with you, kid. You listen to everything I tell you. Within six months, I'll make you world champion. He said, wow. So we went through a whole thing. And I moved him into my house on my home drive. And I got him in the greatest shape he was ever in his life. And I taught him this breathing. And uh, six months later, he was world champion. We won the super middleweight championship of the world. And he was world champion for several years. He defended it, went right down the list and beat everybody. One, two, three, four, five, six, Michael, Nunn, everybody. He beat everybody. Fought all over the world. And, uh, and in between rounds, I used to tell him, he breathed deep and he would put so much oxygen in his body and just, you know, but so it's, it thoroughly works. But you got to do it. You got to work it. You know. But you you get to a point where your body does it on its own. So, it just gives you so much better oxygen and feeling in what you're doing. It's, it's kind of, a, but it relaxes you and teaches you how to relax. You can take your heartbeat down. I, I scare doctors. I do it in their office. I'll sit there. I go and get checkups, and I'll sit there and I'll I'll go through a breathing thing for five minutes, and they, they'll take my take my blood pressure and. And, and my pulse rate and then they'll put me on a machine to take it again and it drops like 20 Like they, they look at it what, what are you doing What? Are, how do you do that how do you how do you that thing <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I do it as a joke but it's uh, you know the, the arts are real if you really get into the old time martial arts and that's where Bruce and I had a great connection so I understood where he came from and what he was doing And uh, the guy, in fact, there's a guy in in Southern California who has a school. That's where Bruce, in this movie where he gets hurt, he's at that school when a guy kicks him in his back. And this guy did a lot. Most of the martial art movies, he's the special effects guy. I forget his name. Famous guy. So he had a tournament going on. And they invited this old man from Rhode Island to come out to this tournament. And one of the guy's students from Rhode Island came out to L.A. and he had built up his name because he did what this old man taught him and he was beating everybody, you know. So he wanted to put an exhibition on with the old man to, to make him look like a big shot. Shit like that. The old man came out and this guy was trying, and I was there, this guy tried to hurt this old man. I mean, he was taking cheap shots at him and the old man stopped for a minute. And with two fingers, he shattered his thigh bone, his arms, his ulna, or ulna bone of his arms, and he broke his ribs. The guy was laying on the ground withering. And all he said to the guy was, why would you try to embarrass me that way? But with two fingers, just touching him, I said, wow. And this guy that ran the school, he was scared to death. And he said, I had nothing to do with it. I swear to God, that was all him. He, he, <laughs> he, he did that on his own. He did that on his own. He said, I had nothing to do with it. I promise you I had nothing to do with it. And Bruce Lee was there. Bruce Lee said, Naughty, naughty, man. <laughs> bad, 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 You just can't. Shh. Naughty, naughty, boy. You know. And this this old guy was like a little booter. And he was he was, he was cool he was, he had a lot of fun with for a lot of years.
0: Yeah, you got to be respectful of, of, of the people that have trained you and and, and for him to do that. Absolutely. Well, well obviously he got his um, up comeuppance rather quickly.
2: It was the end of him in martial arts, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I mean, he, he shattered. He shattered his fever in his leg, boy, and and his and, his old, and the old burn in his, in his arm and, and he broke a couple of his ribs just to slow his breathing. <laughs> And I stood there watching, and watched uh, his two fingers just touched him, boom, boom, boom. And, and, and the guy crumbled to the ground. I said, holy shit. And then the medics come in and they said, wow, get the ambulance. This guy ain't getting up and walking nowhere. You know, the game was up. And the guy running the whole tournament, that was a blinded guy, he said, had a famous name in Hollywood. And he just, he, had, he almost had a hard time had nothing to do with me, so I, I swear <laughs> to God, I had no, I, yeah. <laughs> and this little old man, he just always said was, why would the guy try to embarrass me like that? What's wrong with him? You know, yep. Here I was kind and taught him everything, and why would he do that? So I said, well, the ego of white people,
0: that's, you know, unfortunate. Yes, yes, it was, and, um, we talked earlier, you're a writer and you, you, you wrote a book, Family Legacy. which Yeah, is if you go to
2: familylegacythenovel.com, it'll come up and it takes you to Amazon. And we're getting ready to publish a, another another book. And, and uh, you've heard the name Lucky Luciana? Yeah. Charlie Lucky Luciana? Yeah. Well, his son's a dear friend of mine. And he's got his father's book, The Last Testament of Charles Luciana. So, we were going, I was just going to make a movie of mine. Then a couple more books come out, make some movies and do a series. And we decided to interface Charlie's book because he lived in his father's world and his father, and my father were partners. So a lot of stuff is in his father's book about my father. And so a lot of stuff in my book about Charlie and, uh, And they lived in an era where nobody really understands how powerful they really were. You know? Uh, So we're going to tell the truth about a lot of things that happened in the country. My father ran this little company in New York called Murder Incorporated with a guy named Louis Lipke and Buckholder. And uh, after Buckholder was, they made, my father made a deal with uh, Hoover because Buckholder had to turn himself in. There was no, he did something and, and he exposed a lot of things and it was costing the families a lot of money. My father hit him for two years. And, and they sat down and they made a decision. You, you got to take the heat off this man. You gotta, so he didn't want to be checked into a cop station. So they made a deal. Warren Winchell brokered the deal with Hoover. And he walked across 39th Street into Hoover's, my father's car, Hoover's car and turned himself into the FBI. And it was the first major criminal that the FBI ever captured. They didn't capture him. He walked right in our car. But it gave them a lot of credibility and funding. You know what I mean?
0: Yep.
2: And, uh, but the heat came to my father after Buckholder was in jail. And one of the things I loved about Buckholder, and I, I never met him was before my time, but when he was in jail and before they, they gave him the electric chair, and he's in his cell the night before they were going to burn them. And Dewey went down to see him and said, oh, you know, Lewis, you don't have to die. Oh, you, you know, your dear friends put you here. So all you have to do is tell us certain things and, and, and I'll make sure you, you get commuted to life in jail and your life will be, I will take care of you while you're in here and blah, 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 blah. And what colour looked at him and he said, if my dear friends put me here, they must have had a great reason for doing it. So let's cut all the crap out. Let's take a walk down that aisle, put me in the chair, and let's get this game on. And do, we, do we, it. It was astonishing that this guy, just, you know, that's the way they were, you know. And uh, the uh, so the heat came on Albert. And Albert, they were in newspaper or front lines. Where's Albert Anastasia? And Albert went in the army. And he was a, That's how I was conceived. He was in, he went in Fort, uh, Indian Gap, Pennsylvania. You were Indian Gap, Pennsylvania? Yeah. Not far from where you live. And they had an army base there. And he was teaching soldiers how to be longshoremen. He was a sergeant, teaching soldiers how to be longshoremen. And of course, he never spent a night in the camp. He was in Philadelphia every night. That's where he met my mother in 1942. And I was conceived, I was born in 43. and uh, and Albert, I think he spent a year and a half or so and uh, and he was looking at it because he ran all the waterfronts in America and he had a guy that was um, an Irishman named uh, Collins whose brother was the famous Major Collins from Ireland in the IRA Okay. and Rip Collins was was an engineer and he worked for General Electric and a smart, smart guy but He also ran the IRA down on the waterfront and was connected with my father big time. So he, and he knew my mother and and, uh, he became a minder of mine when I was born because my father didn't want involved in New York at all. And uh, Albert went back to New York and moved his family to Fort Lee in 44. uh, And I was born in 43. And Rick Collins was my minder taught me a lot of things, including the arts and other things in, the, in my life. And,
0: uh, mm-hmm. my filthy delphi upbringing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean? I've uh, understand understand. Well, it did show you the power
2: they had. When Albert was in Pennsylvania, <clears throat> there was a captain of his platoon reading a newspaper from New York. And he picked up the phone he called New York police and he said, uh, this Albert Anastasia guy you guys are looking for, I, I got him right here in my army. He, he's right here. And the guy said, Who? Said, Albert Anastasia. You guys are looking for him all over the place. He's right here in my army. And the guy said, Hold on a second. And he came back on the line and he said, I ah, said, That's all media stuff. We're not looking for Albert Anastasia. That's all media stuff. You've got him in your army, guys. He's got to be reasoning there. That's all media. <laughs> that's the power they have. Yeah, understand. Yep. And when he Albert came out, he was only there a year and a half or so. And when he came back to New York and he moved his family, they made him a citizen. He wasn't even a citizen when he went into the army. For going in and doing what he did, they made him citizen of the United of America. That's how he got a citizenship. But they had a strength and a power that was beyond your wild imagination. They never abused it. Really abused it. Frank Costello was one of the most connected individuals. Actually. So we wrote this book, and, and we're telling the true story about how, from the beginning, they were all connected, government, industry, organized crime, unions, and they worked together as partners in a lot of ways for the betterment of a country. And no one ever talks about that. They all have these, and the amazing thing is that no one has a crystal ball on it. You no, know, one can say, this movie is going to do this or this movie, but the one genre of film that has never lost a dime is organized crime. Any picture of it, even the spooks made money. So, it, you have to take a look at, you know, so we're going to do this and, and combine some books and combine some memories of, of old, there's a lot of old timers across the country. They would love to tell the truth before they die. And, uh, and put things straight, how things really emerged, and how certain things really were, and how America is such a great country if you allow it to be a great country. Because even every one of them that came out of Italy and they wanted to be Americans when they came, they they took on the persona of America and they built the country. They helped build the country, you know. So it's um, yeah. So you know, the book is family legacy it goes from my father's death to the Kennedy assassination, and I tell the truth about the Kennedy assassination, what really happened, and why it happened. And uh, then we'll do the next book, and we'll tell about the Nixons and, and we'll, the different different landmarks in the country that no one's ever
0: got the real answer for. It's time to tell the truth about it. So that's what we're going to do. And um, uh, Mr. Halloran, how can people get a hold of you if they want Jack, please. Oh, Jack. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> Jack, how can people get a hold of you if they want to um, send you um, any feedback or, uh, uh, you know, emails or whatever or anything? Do you have any sites? I have a, an
2: email address, uh, Family Legacy. I mean, no, the email address is uh, uh, Properties at gmail.com. movielandproperties with well, an S on there at gmail.com.
0: And I'll put that in our show notes so people, if, they want it, if you want to send any um, comments to, yeah. to Jack about is film work. And again, most, I know most of you are coming into this interview to listen to and probably thinking Superman, which is, which is a two big movies that you did, but I've, I'm hoping that everybody got an idea that you're more than just non. You've done quite a lot of different things <laughs> in your life. <laughs> uh, I was, non
2: just made us iconic, you know. But, uh, I mean, I, I enjoyed every, I, I To me, my favorite movie is Farewell, My Love. And that's because of my relationship with Mitchum, I think, you know. Uh, but, I mean, I every film I did, I had a personal feeling for. You know, like a bullet being Jimmy Cobar and working with Omar Sharif. And, you know, you, you're talking about great actors, you know. and, and Superman with Brando. I and mean, Brando was dynamic. Hackman was the second movie I did with Hackman, you know. And, and they talk about movie starlets well I worked with some of the most beautiful women in the history of Hollywood you know Charlotte Rampling was no chump trust me when I say, and Catherine Deneuve was, and, and Jessie Lang is. Jessie was dropped dead gorgeous she was just a, a wonderful woman so, so
0: and we didn't even talk been about been around that. done that and we didn't even talk about you working with Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks and Dragnets. So, I mean, you. Oh, a- Dragnet! What a movie that was! Oh my God, you ever, did you watch that? Oh yeah, I, I haven't seen it recently, but I have seen it a couple it, times before. You could watch Dragnet fifty times and still not
2: get all the one-liners that Danny threw out. I mean, he did that. He had that earpiece in his ear, listening to Jack Webb all the time. He just he he knocked that out of the ballpark. And that was Tom Hanks' breakthrough movie. Tom was what a nice kid, and, was, and, and it was it. And another great cast: Christopher Plummer. I mean, there was some big time. I mean, great actors: Dabney Coleman. Was, oh yeah, Harry Morgan. I mean, yeah, Harry Morgan. Poor Harry. Harry had Alzheimer's disease. We're doing the scene at the restaurant when they when when the, when the when the girl exposes uh, uh, Christopher Plummer as the villain that. Uh, and and poor Harry wandered off. They couldn't find him. We had to do the shot outside when we come out, and he's telling Joe he's taking his badge and all that stuff. We they lost him. He, he wandered off down the street somewhere. Harry was one of the nicest guys, but again, he was on on the, on the verge of Alzheimer's, which was sad. Yeah, but, uh, but we had so much fun doing that movie. I mean, my God. Danny was a trip to work, and so was Tom. It was, uh, it was, it was a lot. And that, again, it was another fun movie. You know, we had a lot of fun with it. And I got to uh, play a bad guy with with some humor. So, and it was, uh, that worked out pretty well. So, especially the scene. So I get a lot of comments about the scene where they got me there, where they're interrogating me. You know? <laughs> it was. Uh, Different the different mannerisms I took during the whole thing. So, people got a kick out of And people that know me, you know, it's, it's like when I did Farewell with my lover, friends of mine from the East Coast called me up and said, They actually paid you to do that movie? <laughs> I said, Well, what do you expect? He said, That was just you, man. What? <laughs> you got paid to play yourself? Oh, I left. <laughs> you know, it's just, the industry has allowed me to project things and it was a lot of fun. Yeah.
0: And, and, and that, I could yeah, tell was fun. I'm sorry, continue.
2: But I said Dragnet was a lot of fun.
0: And I could tell you, you seem like every movie we've talked about and we've, and we haven't talked about all of them and, and but you seem to always be enjoying yourself with everybody, not just the stars, but you seem to talk to everybody and they're just a down-to-earth person, I think that's what makes the movie so memorable, is that the even though, even though some of the friendships might be fleeting, it's like some of those working relationships that you have, it's just, you know, those are the things that you remember a lot. And, well, you know, I uh, live
2: by an adage in my life, if you can't have fun with it, why do it? You know, if you can't have fun with it, why are you doing it? You know what I mean? So uh, I, I, I used to laugh and joke on the sets, and people would say, God man." How do you get? How about getting into your car? I say, well, I do that when they turn the
0: camera. If I gotta go to work. I go to work. You know? Right now, we're just laughing giggling, so. <laughs> But Jack, thank you again for taking time out of your day to um, let me remi- have these reminiscence with you about your past movies. I mean, it's there's a lot of things I didn't know about that you were able to share with myself and the listeners, and I hope that they'll. It's
2: my pleasure, it. truly, my pleasure. I, you know, I enjoyed, and, and we're not done yet. We've got some things we're going to do, and you know, it's uh, as soon as this pandemic thing lights up and lets people get back to normal lives, you know, uh, we got some. We had a couple films that we're going to do that are going to be a lot of
0: fun. I'd love to have you come back on when those films start to come out that um, you're working on, and we can you can talk about those projects that are coming up.
2: Be my pleasure, man. Be my pleasure. Truly.
0: Well, thanks again. Bye.
1: The year is 1922. We are in the Valley of the Kings, Egypt. The sun beats down on dozens of workers... As axes go up and down, As shovels move rocks and sand. Steel strikes stone, And Howard Carter, Nearing the end of his money And his patron's patience After years of disappointment, Squints and looks at his work. Dust fills the air, Along with the curses of the native foreman, directing his charges. A young water boy scrambles back and forth from water barrel to digger, quenching thirst one man at a time. He stumbles and spills some of the water on a stone. It is smooth, chiseled to a sharpened edge in the bedrock. It is no accident. It is not natural. It is the first step that would lead to the tomb of the pharaoh Tutankhamun. Three weeks later, steel strikes stone again, and Carter, along with Lord Carnivron, would open a small hole in a doorway to a tomb, undisturbed for three thousand years, filled with riches beyond imagination. Can you see anything? Carnivron would ask Carter. Yes, Carter would reply. Wonderful things. Wonderful things that would cause a renaissance in the interest in archaeology and everything Egyptian. This interest would become a mania, a mania that would spread throughout the world, reflected in literature and in fashion. It is only a matter of time before film takes notice. The year is 1932. Carl LaMell Jr. is the ruler of his own kingdom. Located thousands of miles away from the Nile Valley in Hollywood, California, he looks out of his office window and sees life, sees stories being created every day. Once it was a farm, now it is a hive of creativity, his own universal city. A young messenger in woolen cap and suspenders holding up his baggy pants runs toward a nearby soundstage, a piece of paper in his hand. The hot West Coast sun beats down upon him as he moves toward the building, casting a small shadow upon the ground. Given to him as a present by his father, Universal Pictures is thriving under Junior's guiding hand. In 1931, lightning struck twice. The first bolt involved a novel. In his search for inexpensive literary properties to bring to life, Lamell finances an adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. On the heels of his first horror hit, Dracula, Frankenstein builds on the atmosphere, special effects, and use of music that the adaptation of Bram Stoker's vampire novel set the foundation for earlier in the year. The movie is an instant hit and begins to put Universal on a solid financial footing, as well as giving them a reputation for turning out inexpensive horror movies on a regular basis. The second bolt brought Frankenstein's monster to life and made an overnight star of a quiet, polite British actor named Boris Karloff. He was born William Henry Pratt, but Karloff spent his formative years dividing his time between small roles for stage and screen and odd jobs and manual labor. The moment that the monster is revealed on the screen, Karloff's life would never be the same. It would take a while for the movie going public to associate the exotic looking actor with the towering silent monster. But his star rose quickly and Lamelle knew that he must act quickly. They must strike while the iron is hot and take advantage of this new momentum. They must find another horror vehicle for their new star, Boris Karloff. The year is 2021 and a new podcast is coming. Created by Bill Mize, the man who brought you the award-winning Bill Watches Movies, he now brings you Monsters by the Minute, a new storytelling journey into the world of classic horror films. A unique combination of biography, old-time radio, and classic storytelling, the first season of Monsters by the Minute will tell you the story of The Mummy, the 1932 classic that would combine the public's fascination with Egypt, with the need for Universal to have another movie for Karloff. This understated occult horror classic would cement Karloff's reputation as the premier horror star of the decade and bring Universal more fame and acclaim as they go three for three in building their horror movie stable. From the screenwriters to the director to the stars, Join Bill as he tells you the story of the mummy from both sides of the camera. Minute by minute, he will tell you the story of Imhotep, the undead priest, as he attempts to be reunited with his long-lost love, the Princess Oxenamon. If you'd like to learn more, please go to MonstersByTheMinute.com and sign up now to receive up-to-the-minute news about the podcast. Get ready, gentle listeners, for Monsters by the Minute, Season 1, The Mummy.